May I please have your full and undivided attention? It is time for the Paranormal Rundown. Hello, this is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. I am the unexpectedly psychic butler who works with these fine gentlemen. You found your way to the Paranormal Rundown. That was extremely good of you. So, let's get ready to listen to JJ, Vicar Manson, and Dave Griffith as they discuss over 1,300 exciting and titillating paranormal topics. The gents are referring to this show as the Paranormal Rundown Roundup, in which topics that did not receive adequate time and consideration in previous episodes are revisited, and we take the time to discuss these things properly. So there will be a new guest this evening, which gives us time to properly clean and aerate the dungeon, which is their normal waiting space. Hello out there in Paranormal Rundown Land. My name is Avalon Leanne Dankworth Smythe. You can call me Avalon Lee. I am Cedric's daughter and connection to the real world. He is so incredibly busy with his Butlerian duties that he has asked me to occasionally bring clarity and factual corrections to the well-meaning, but often informationally problematic rantings of Dave, JJ, and Vic. To be fair, I will always reference them alphabetically. Otherwise I'd have to rank them by something more contentious, like their levels of male physical attractiveness or levels of human nudity. It's far safer to just keep things alphabetical. Thank you so very much, Avalon. I'm so incredibly proud of you. And just a wee bit frightened. Uh, forget I said that. Anyway, after today, after this episode, the Paranormal Rundown will enter a bi-monthly, meaning twice a month, publication schedule. Therefore, the next rundown will be published on October 1st. Ah, it gives you less time to wait. Between the boys, myself, and Avalon. Welcome back, everybody. This is David Griffith, and I'm here with JJ and Vic Hermanson, and this is the first Paranormal Rundown Roundup. We've had a couple of shows now, and we have run across a few topics where we just decided that at the time, it was just going to take too long to discuss. We really wanted to be able to get into them and give them the time they were needed, but uh, it wasn't right then. So we decided to have a show to cover those topics where we could spend as long as we want and even longer if we so choose. And this is that show. So here we are. Get ready for the Rundown Roundup. Well, the first topic that seems to be natural right now, simply because of what's been happening in JJ's world recently, is folk magic and the things that JJ has seen and the things that JJ has heard. And he 
right before we got started, told me he's been talking more and more to his mom and she's been telling him more and more things. So, JJ, why don't you take it away? Sure. So, are you all familiar with the word haint? I am. Yes. It always surprised me when I would go outside of the South, like when I was in grad school, and for some reason the word would come up. And professors or fellow students who were not in the same area would look at me like I had suddenly grown, uh, you know, grown three different heads at the same time. But uh, anyway, stories of haint abound where I live. Um, every single farmstead, house, property, whatever you want to call it, has its own designated haint story. Um, and that's kind of where I drew a lot of the surface knowledge of what I had uh, from the area. And I didn't really go too much further in, into that. Uh, like I have seen things myself. I have seen really weird crap uh, where I grew up because the land that we're a part of uh, it has tons of uh, of Native American burial mounds all over the place. In fact, there's one place that we call Tarzan's Hill, which is about a good six-mile walk straight back into, you know, 300 acres worth of woods. And it is a, a hill with a, gosh, I want to say like um, a 70% grade to it. And wow. it's just a, it's just a burial mound. It, it's it's amazing to witness. I've been there twice in my life, and not none of those in recent times. But seventy percent um, grade's a pretty steep hill. It, oh, it, it's almost impossible to walk up. How, how it, big it, is the hill? It goes up by two or three stories, three oh, wow. stories at least. No, 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 no. Much bigger than that. It's more like five or six stories. Like, it's huge. I mean, that they call it Tarzan's Hill for a reason. Huh. We have a burial mound uh, south of us down in Ormond Beach on the intercoastal there. And it's it's actually got a you know a marker on it and everything else. It's right beside the road. And but it's about the size of I don't know, a school bus. <laughs> it's like you know it's the only official mound i've ever seen that you know you knew 100 percent it was a burial mound but it was it's was very small yeah but a burial Certainly mound like on that. on <clears throat> on the florida coast it's going to be pretty co much constantly flooded yes that's true and well so jj what did you uh experience at tarzan hill i didn't experience anything at tarzan's hill but there is a location, my front door neighbor's house, uh, the people that live right across the road from uh -huh. where I grew up. And there is a section of woods behind their house. It starts off to the side and then winds its way back. That's called the colons. Okay. Just like a colon in your body. Called the colons. All right. Fair call enough. It this because it is pitted and full of holes. Okay. Uh, to the point where people are actively discouraged from 
even stepping foot into the place because there's been more than a few people with broken legs and ankles and all the rest of it just because of how treacherous the ground is. And it's the only place that I'm aware of in the entire vicinity that is known for anything like this. When I was a kid, uh, probably uh, nine, ten, somewhere around there, uh, we decided to with the uh, with the neighbors' kids decided to play Fright Night. So I got I I took white towels and uh, pieces of paper and kind of like attached them to my body as best as I possibly could to be the ghost. And it was nothing more than a modified version of hide and seek. Okay. Uh, they had with, two, with ghost outfit. Exactly. Um, nowadays that would probably be taken in a much different context that I don't want to think about. But, okay. But, but was, that was not your intention. No, no, no. This was all <laughs> yeah. entirely innocent. I, I right. tell you <laughs> straight to goodness. Uh, but they had two kids, a, a boy who, uh, who was a year younger than I, uh, who actually recently passed away just a year and a half ago, two years ago, um, and then a, an older girl by two years, uh, and that becomes a little bit relevant, a little in a, in a little bit. Um, God, how many times can I say a little bit? Uh, and then as many as had, you wish. There is no limit on this show, apparently. So, and then they had three uh, kids, which were fosters that they were looking after at the time. Mm-hmm. And we go over there, and it's gotten dark. Uh, we're all playing outside, playing hide-and-seek. But there becomes a period of the night where I can't find anybody. And I'm looking all over the place, and I finally rope around the back of their house, and there's a, a giant pile of wood on one side, and then there's an entrance to the basement. Uh-huh. And... Next to the road to the basement is a small trail that leads off into the colons. Uh-huh. And I look down this trail and I see a white, slender figure, almost glowing, but not quite. And the first thing that springs to my mind is oh, that must be the older daughter because she was. Tall, very slim, uh, very pretty. And I'm like, but what is she doing down there? It's dangerous down there. And I sit there and look, and it just, I mean, it, it moves around in small circles, but it doesn't really deviate from where it's going. It just kind of stands in the same place, but still moving. And I'm like, okay, that's weird. And then I turn around and go into the basement door. And the entire family is there laughing at me because they all decided we're going to go hide from him and he's going to be stuck out there in the dark. We're going to see how scared he gets. Uh-huh. <laughs> and sure enough, the eldest daughter is right there along beside them. And yeah, that's when I kind of realized that wasn't a human that I saw down there. Because, I mean, this area was like, it had like two gates behind it. Nobody could easily get into it. There's no reason why someone, especially in the dark, would be walking down this pitted trail. So that was, uh, 
Yeah, that was always one of the more interesting things. But uh, going past this kind of surface level ghost stories. Wait, uh, wait, been, wait, 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 wait a minute. Well, go ahead. Yeah, stop, stop. yeah go ahead, go wait, ahead, go ahead. Wait a minute. You're not, you don't get off that easy. If this, was, if this was not a human you were seeing, what do you think it was? A spirit, a ghost, a spirit, a haint, a haint. And, but there was nothing other than just the visualization of it. There was no noise. There was no, uh, attack. There was no, I did feel the hairs in the back of my head stand straight up. Boy, I bet. Yeah. But I just took that. I I just took it as a curious sensation. I didn't feel overwhelming dread or anything, but it was just, it was so alien of you. Um, it was almost like, um, it was almost like witnessing the Fae. Cool. Which is something I've never experienced. Oh, I haven't either outside of this one particular thing that reminds me of it. But Now, was that area ever known for things like that? <sighs> Any local stories or anything? I'm sure that there are, but the our front door neighbors weren't exactly the friendliest of individuals. Okay, um, so they weren't your best bosom buddies. No, I was friends with the younger, with the boy, mm-hmm. but otherwise, like, our families and theirs never really associated or anything like that. All right, so, JJ, your life, I mean, I know enough about your life to know that part of survival for you has definitely been the ability to kind of read the emotions of others, to have some intuitive understanding of what you're, what you're facing. Yes. Was this a benevolent thing a malevolent thing a neutral thing i honestly have no idea have no idea okay i I would think that if it was malevolent then it would have come after me so or it wasn't able to it it was something but i i I didn't mean i felt weird around it it definitely spooked me Mm -hmm. but i i wasn't in like instant dread you weren't in instant horror Correct. Well, that's good. But yeah, the colons and areas behind our house are known for Native American burial mounds. So um, that's a very strange name. Also, let's hey, let's go down to the colons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, you take a left at the small intestine. <laughs> yeah, take a left. At the small <laughs> <intestine>. <laughs> so let, let's hear some more, JJ. Let's see. So, yeah, there is the story of, let's see, my um, my great aunt and uncle. They lived in a in a, a house um, separated from where I grew up by just a little tobacco field uh, with a barn, and so they lived right next door. And the person who owned the property before them was said to be the stingiest man alive. Uh, he hated everybody. What was that? I said, that's quite a title. Oh yeah. Uh, it's kind of common. I mean, you always get stories about penny pinchers, but uh-huh. this man took it to a legendary degree. Uh, and he would, he hated banks. He hated people. 
And so what he would do is he would supposedly take all of his money, put it into coffee cans, metal coffee cans, and then bury them in very um, strategic areas of his property. Mm -hmm. Which, of course, went to my great uncle and great aunt. And... Yeah, they always uh, they would always tell stories. I think more to frighten kids than anything. That uh, if you ever tried to dig up old man, what I forget his name, uh, uh, possessions, then he would absolutely come for you. Uh, and to my knowledge, no one has ever found anything that was supposedly buried or not. But uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me one way or the other. <laughs> <laughs> do you know who um sometimes i think it's it's my job to sort of throw out weird little facts since i've got so dang many of them <laughs> do you know who hetty green was doesn't ring a bell with me that name sounds familiar but i can't put they called hetty green she was a, she was a woman who they called her the witch of wall street and she was apparently, I'm thinking like in the uh, late 1800s, the wealthiest woman in America. And so she, you know, she was a businesswoman on Wall Street, you know, trading, financing businesses, collecting loans, this kind of thing. But she lived in total poverty. Um, I'm. I think in certain times she'd really kind of just lived on the street, but when she died, she left this immense fortune um, <clears throat> and had had zero enjoyment of life other than, you know, you know, living in penury all these years. Hello, this is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. This is an excellent time to take advantage of the paranormal rundown trans temporal news service. From the Free Press Evening Bulletin, 28 November, 1925. Hetty Green, the greatest woman financier of history. Evidence introduced at the surrogate's court in the course of the attempt of the state of New York to tax the estate of Mrs. Hetty Howard Robinson Green after her death in 1916 throws a strong light upon the eccentricities of the world's richest woman, who was more oppressed by her wealth than was many an employee on her estates by his poverty. She never owned in New York so much as a three-legged stool in the way of a home, and she moved from one ten or fifteen dollar a week boarding house to another in constant terror that her fellow boarders would learn her identity. This woman, whose only offense was that she was too rich, lived almost like a criminal, dreading arrest. She lived under at least six assumed names, hoping to elude schemers and murderous cranks. She certainly spent very little for clothes. The same rusty black gown and shabby hat were as familiar on Wall Street as the shrewd little old lady who wore them. Speaking of the latter, she said, No, it isn't in style, but it is a perfectly good hat. I have worn it almost ten years, and it will give me at least ten years more good service. Into the black eyes that could dart such shrewd glances flashed a sly twinkle. The woman wizard of finance could smile very tenderly when off guard, a smile that quite transformed her from the financial genius of Wall Street. I was not cut out for a fashion plate, so I have never bothered about what I wear. Hetty thought her sex paid altogether too much attention to the things that didn't count, that tea party nonsense. 
who, looking at her, would have guessed that she was the woman who could make brilliant businessmen, learned in the financial game, sit up and figure far into the night to find out just how Hetty Green had won while they had been less fortunate. Hetty Green's name never appeared on a charity list, but during the Great Chicago Strike, she erected whole blocks of buildings to give the idle men employment. That was her practical way of dispensing charity. She believed in helping the other fellow to help himself. Hetty Green, as she was familiarly known in the financial world, was born in 1835 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Her father left her a large fortune, and in 1867 she married Edward H. Green, who also had amassed wealth as an exporter in the Philippines. Mr. Green died in 1902, and Hetty continued to pile up the millions for the daughter and the son, Colonel E. H. R. Green, to inherit. This remarkable woman was interested in nearly every large corporation and enterprise of magnitude all over the world. She owned a railroad in Texas and personally managed her large holdings of stocks, bonds, and real estate. Shortly before her death, though worth at least $100 million, she occupied a cheap flat in Hoboken. The world laughed at the amusing anecdotes told about her eccentricities and never suspected that her keen desire was for the world's esteem to be understood. But the desire to be understood is not alien to people who spend their lives piling up money. Like Hetty Green, people who are ostensibly misers will seek all their lives for the unadulterated milk of human kindness. Well, it's, it's always amusing to me, the stories of buried money. I mean, we all have heard them. We all love them. Uh, I've actually uh, metal detected on, on a family's property once to try to help them find money that they were certain was, was buried. Mm-hmm. by a, a great uncle or something who lived on the property at one time, supposed to be a bunch of silver coins. You know, the, these stories are not always just, you know, rumors. Um, they, are, they were certain this guy had the money. He didn't like banks. He buried it on his property within reach of of his shack so that he could find it. and. Um, it's it's just a funny uh, a funny way of uh, you understand I guess the perspective the mistrust but man once you once you're gone who's gonna find it you know well I mean there'll be people out there looking if they think it's there yeah yeah but it's not easy to find money buried in the ground no even with nice metal detector it's uh. JJ, the um, when I grew up in Louisiana, I didn't. I mean, I left Louisiana when I was when I was eight, <clears throat> but I lived out in that bizarre little town, and it really was kind of just one of the strangest places ever. And I've told you about these strange families that lived back off in the pine woods, and and one of the the grandmothers of those families when I would come back there. She liked me, you know, so she'd give me a piece of cake or a cookie or something. And when it was time for me to go home, she'd say, all right, boy, now you watch for them Haints. You know, you watch for them Haints. Them Haints are out there. But in her mind, Haints were were physical critters. Uh, You know, you you got the little Haints, you got the big Haints, and you got the great big Haints. And don't ever mess with the great big Haints. But if you see a little Haint... Don't play with it because then the big hands are going to come to 
stop your playing. Um, what she was referring to, I think, was something like the the local version of of Bigfoot, hmm. or the local version of the forest critter, or the Dogman, or something. Yeah, uh, that is not the first time that I have heard <laughs> that kind of separation. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people will say that, like I mean, to me, because I actually have brought this up to a um, philologist. And he had mentioned that, uh, you know, a haint could easily be a degradation of vowels from the word haunt. Yeah, of course. And that would make the most <clears throat> sense, at least from an etymological. I've, I would just always assume that's what it was. But uh, yeah, you got some people that they will say that uh, a haint is one thing, a spirit is another thing, a ghost is another thing. And where I was from, everything was just merged into either a ghost or a haint. There was really no difference. But And I know if you get into certain parts of Appalachia, uh, or apparently from what you're saying, Louisiana, then yeah, you do see this kind of distinction of, of no, a haint is definitely this type of thing. Well, this grandmotherly woman talked about Look, I mean, <clears throat> you know, my love of stories didn't start last year. Uh, well, you know, when I, when I was, Aww. you know, when I, when I was six <laughs> or seven, I would sit and listen to her stories for hours. And and she talked about, you know, there was a time I'm going to I'm sorry, I don't mean to insult her accent because I can't recreate her accent. But it was a beautiful thing to listen to. And she would say things like, you know, there was a time when one of them little baby haints got lost and got separated from its mama and it was crying out in the woods and I went and got it and I fed it some oatmeal and I fed it some milk and uh, it got strong again. And then we had to walk through the woods for a while trying to find its mama. And, and so, you know, my mind is blown at this point. I'm just thinking, okay, so she's gone out and found this little critter of some kind. She'd describe it. You know, he said, you know, it's, it's kind of got a face, but you know, it's a real broad nose and it's, uh, they get real big and it's got hair everywhere and they smell horrible. So what was she talking about? I mean, was she just making up a story to entertain a six-year-old perhaps, but these people, and, and I guess it's maybe one of the things that you find in Appalachia or anywhere, there's a real mixing of the spiritual world and the physical world with these people. And in many of their minds, I think they are equally real just on a a day-to-day basis. Once again, I'm not a scholar, so I can't take that any, any further. But but that was that's been my thoughts over the years. Was it in her mind the the haint was real? Well, I don't see any reason why it couldn't be. Oh, well, I neither mean, do I. <clears throat> you look at the you know the experiences you know we've each had, people we know have had uh, in terms of of spirits or something demonic, whatever, there's obviously things out there we can't explain. Uh, There's a huge community for Bigfoot and swamp apes or whatever they call them down in Florida, the, uh, you know, dog men all over the country. 
there's seems to be something behind many of these experiences, something unexplainable. Uh, no matter how much they they haven't been able to you know, prove things, there certainly are are lots of reasonable stories around it. And you take somebody who lives up in the mountains, or down in the swamp, or down in the swamp. You know, out away from general population. I'm sure they saw plenty of stuff yeah. that just wasn't explainable. So, JJ, you've got any other hint stories? Um, I do, but I figured the more interesting piece would be to talk about more of the folk magic aspect. Let's hear that. Definitely. That's how it sort of, that's how it sort of started out in the original conversation. I think it was after we had talked about your, your father's spell book and that's what led into the, there's more stories here. So. Yeah, and honestly, because even Victor had asked to do an episode more about folk magic, and I, I finally had to kind of say, I don't, I can't really think of any from the area that I was from. And I happened to have mentioned this to my mom in passing conversation. And she was like, yeah, that's interesting. I can't either. But then over past couple of months, she'll go, oh, hey, I did think of this. And oh, hey, how about this instance? And now I'm starting to get like a running catalog of some of these types of stories that were very well known. Um, the first is there's an entire catalog of ancient well not ancient but of older rituals that could be mistaken that probably should be mistaken as magical in nature um which are just pure remedies uh, uh -huh. i had a sty form uh, a couple of months ago bugged the ever-living crap out of me took like two rounds of antibiotics in order to to get the the damn thing resolved but uh my mom told me in all seriousness she was like i want you to go find a crossroads and look left then right and then while facing forward say sty sty that's in my eye go to someone else passing by. And she said that my Uncle Larry, when he was very, very young, had a sty. And this old wise woman that was friends with my grandmother, she happened to have come by, maybe for some eggs. I don't quite remember the reason. And she told my grandmother, yeah, take him down to the crossroads and say this. and. She said, sure enough, next day, there is no more sty. And this was the most common method for removing this type of ailment back in the day. Well, I didn't really remove it, just kind of transferred it. <laughs> yeah, 
And uh, <laughs> so well, there can be all these people kind of transferring these styes back and forth to each other. I don't know what happened. I was just walking down the street <laughs> and I got home and my stupid right eye was red. <laughs> it was kind of bizarre. But the, the more interesting ones were there's an entire classification of stories that came from my mom around biblically versed healers. And they come in two different varieties. The first are those who happen to have talent. There was a lady who my mom knew, and these ladies were always goody something. I love that name. Yeah, I I do too. I was instantly taken by that. I was like, wow, talk about a blast in the past on that one. But anyway, uh, she, my uh, aunt had uh, some warts that were on her legs. And it was starting to get very noticeable. She was very self-conscious about it. And so one person advised my grandmother to take my aunt to goody something. And Mm -hmm. she can take care of it. Mm -hmm. And so she took her. And the woman whispered a, or muttered, I should more accurately say, a some biblical phrase underneath her breath. Never to the point where you can hear it. And that's the common thread amongst all of these stories. They say it, but you never hear it. And the next day, my aunt woke up and she was covered in warts, head to toe. Wow. Hmm. And that's some, scary. Yeah, it is. And so someone else said, oh, no, 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 no. You shouldn't have ever gone to this woman. You got to go to this woman instead. And so desperate now, absolutely, my grandmother took her to this other woman. And she looked at her, this woman did, uh, looked at my aunt and said, you had someone look at her before, didn't you? (laughs) My grandmother was like, yeah, and said who? And she said, yeah, she read it wrong. She read it wrong. And so she whispered something else over my aunt and the next day not a wart to be seen Hmm. the interesting part about the second story is that this power if you want to call it that one almost has to was only passed from mother to son It couldn't be passed to a daughter. It couldn't be a father passing it to anyone. Had to be mother to son. And wouldn't that? How did the original mother get the power? I I don't know. I I don't know. Yeah. So it's one of those things where the lore isn't fully defined. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. But the the point of it was is that the this woman she did not have a son. Oh, okay. And so it that knowledge died with her. Power was going to die with her. And it did. 
it, it's just it's just too bad that you couldn't you know there couldn't be an adoption or you know some kind of contest to see who's worthy of gaining the power or something like you that know, yeah pull the, pull the sword from the stone or something along those lines all right so victor but, you got you've got the medical background here yeah um kind of medical explanation warts one day gone the next something that might present uh, like warts <sighs> some type of uh dermatitis that has wart like features maybe well, hang on a second i want to before i say something i want to look up one thing um and jj you're saying the next day right this isn't like oh very shortly after no no, no. i'm talking about woke up without okay okay well all right <clears throat> once again I'll, I'll assume my role of weird guy who had, knows all kinds of weird things <laughs> um <laughs> there is a disease called epidermodysplasia verusiformis <laughs> For people in the cheap seats, I'll say that one more time. Epo. <laughs> <laughs> Epidermisplasia verusiformis. And it is a disease where people have warts all over their body. It's a horrible disease. There is a relatively famous guy called the Indonesian, I think it's Indonesian, tree man, where he really does look like a tree and that he has all these warts everywhere um, to the point where he can't move his hands and things along those lines. I can't think of a situation where warts would real, any kind of disease where warts would really show up on your body. I can think of diseases where some kind of rash or maybe even some kind of um, pustules or something could show up very rapidly and then fade away very rapidly. But psychosomatically, I do know that people can manifest all kinds of things. If they believe they're going to manifest it, they do. At least a certain portion of people can. Mm -hmm. True. And, and I mean, I, <clears throat> yes, I, I saw some of these people in Houston, you know, people who would they were convinced they had some kind of disease. If a doctor or witch or medicine woman or anybody could convince them that the proper steps had been taken to get rid of that disease, oftentimes it would resolve. The, the idea, I like the idea. I mean, look, to me, that's almost an archetype. I'm sitting here thinking about, you know, the, the old woman who lives in the cabin deep in the woods and always has something in the cauldron and, uh, you know, she answers the door with, you know, one good eye and herbs you know, you, hanging from the ceiling, herb, herbs hanging from the ceiling, a couple of cats hanging around and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, you get the whole picture. Um, and I know that people like that actually exist or actually did exist. Uh, and they may be less common now, but, when you had societies of people that were you know, living remotely, they didn't have access to sophisticated modern healthcare. They found ways of dealing with those illnesses that they could. And the human body is such that 
most of the time it will heal itself. Not always, but some very, very large portion of the time people get well and I'll make some people angry with this, um, despite medical intervention rather than inst- rather than because of medical intervention. I think that is an absolutely fair statement. Not to say that medical intervention is not do wonderful things. Mm-hmm. I absolutely needed. I am here today because of it. But there are lots of things that can happen without medical intervention. So I wonder then, I mean, what were they talking about the the power? I mean, is obviously if I were to read that same Bible verse, I, it wouldn't do anything. I don't I don't have the power inside. Yeah, the and the, I mean, there's a third story as well. I don't remember all the details, but it was a lady who my mom actually went to school with. She was uh, valedictorian of the class, mm-hmm. and she had went through horrible things after graduation and fell into alcoholism, and she stayed there like until she passed away. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a pretty story after the fact. But this woman was even drunker than a skunk. She could show up, and she could take whatever ailed you away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So even so, in that highly compromised state, she was a powerful healer. Yes. Huh. And she too used a biblical verse. Well, that <clears throat> this is in Tennessee where you where you ran into this, right? Yes. Well, that's. I mean, to me, this stuff is fascinating. I I would. Almost like to be, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, uh, to go back to something that was said before of you not able to replicate um, the, the lady's accent. I have had friends visit me in my extremely small state, I mean, mm-hmm. town, and they were desperate to record my great uncle and great aunt and how they spoke. Oh, really? Yeah. <clears throat> and like a college linguistic to, department or something. Exactly. And I wish to goodness gracious that I had recordings of them because, yeah, their their accent was very old Southern. Uh, they still eat me. The, their daily lingo had... Quite a bit of old Gaelic words still kind of sprinkled in. It was really kind of a mixture of some Native American traditions along with old Gaelic. It was really fascinating because I always wondered, you know, where did this come from? Where did that come from? And the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to see, oh, it's kind of a unique blending between two different worlds. and. Uh, it's just been fascinating. This is Tennessee. That whole area, that whole area is not yep. just Tennessee. The Appalachian Mountains were settled by Scottish, Irish, um, a lot of European influence, people with really strong beliefs, really strong culture. And when you look at the the music, the stories, the mix of religious beliefs, uh, they're really, really 
a, a melting pot of these cultures over time. Absolutely. And, you know, I have, I, I really relate to the idea of recording these folks before they pass. I, I have a recorder on me just about all the time now because of all the paranormal investigations I've done. I've recorded hundreds of hours, thousands of hours probably of stuff. Um, but I wish that I'd have had that recorder on me 15, 20 years ago and having conversations with my grandfather, my grandmother. You know, some of the stories they told were fascinating. And some of the, I mean, I've got relatives, uh, you know, named Vivian and Lerman and Dot and, you know, these these unique sort of Southern country names. And they all had these thick accents to go with them and they were a joy to listen to you know that you don't hear it in my voice i i grew up with a lot of voice training for singing stuff like that and so i don't have much of an accent but most people wouldn't understand some of my relatives if you, were uh, you want a funny them. story about that sure so my so my wife is a uh, a second language speaker of English, okay? My mom cannot understand hardly anything that my wife says. Even though my wife has perfectly great English. And I've the heard her. Versa, she sounded fine to me. Yeah, and, and vice versa as well. My wife can't understand anything that my mom says. So <laughs> I feel like I, have you ever seen the movie galaxy quest? Yes. No. Yeah. Where uh, Sigourney Weaver has to play the translator of English to English from the computer <laughs> to the people and vice versa. Right. right. I always joke. Oh, I'm, I'm just an English to English translator here. No, no worries about that. <laughs> <laughs> now, now Vicar, you tell me you have not seen galaxy quest. I haven't seen Galaxy Quest. Have you ever watched Star Trek? Have I ever watched Star Trek? Yeah, everything. Yes. I was a, I was okay. a, I was a, I was a Gene Roddenberry deadhead. I figured you would have really been into that. You've got to watch Galaxy I, Quest. I, I used to follow it is Gene. Hilarious. It I genuinely really followed Roddenberry from city to city. Now I didn't do this for years, <laughs> but, but on one of his tours, I went. For, let me see. Where did I go? I went to uh, started in Nashville, went to Louisville. Went to Lexington, went to Cincinnati, and went to Baltimore. And I, so I saw the Gene Roddenberry, you know, Star Trek conventions, five or six of them in a row. Um, that that is that is just like following the dead. I that real <laughs> props for that, Vic. I like that. <laughs> I like that. I mean, it's nerdy, but oh man, it was nerdy. I, I, you get real street cred for doing that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> well, there was only a few years that Roddenberry was actually part of the of the Star Trek conventions, but some of those I I really still have pretty good memories of those because yeah, they would have well they would have different stars at different conventions. So and then they'd always play the uh, the blooper reel. And they'd always play the uh, uh, the menagerie. Oh yeah, which was the I guess the pilot episode. Dave, you know the menagerie. I uh, it it rings a bell, but not you know. 
My memory All right. is terrible. Well, so. <clears throat> I, I, I'm just going to do an executive decision and give you a one-minute rundown of the menagerie. Okay. The menagerie um, mostly takes place on a ship going to a planet. Uh, the ship has been commandeered by Spock, and he's taking Captain Pike back to this planet. I think it's the Lord. I can even remember the name of the planet. I think it's Telos four because the aliens that they're going back to see are the Telosians. And captain Pike was on that planet years and years and years ago. And he ran into the Telosians. He actually ran into what he thought was a lost, uh, a lost expedition, a lost mission. And so it's all these old nerdy scientists and this one young, beautiful girl. And and the beautiful girl walks up to Captain Pike and says something like, oh, you appear to be a healthy, virile specimen. (laughs) 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 And and the scientist says something, you'll have to excuse her. She's lived her entire life among aging scientists. Well, (laughs) so so anyway... uh, it it turns out that there is a girl. There aren't any scientists. The girl was the sole survivor of a crashed expedition ship, was horribly, horribly maimed and disfigured. The Telosians were able to put her back together, but had no idea what a real human looked like. And so she's horribly deformed and disfigured. Um, but the Telosians have such incredibly powerful mental control that they can make you see or believe or feel anything they want you to feel. I remember this episode. And so in the meantime, Captain Pike has been, I don't know, caught in a, you know, some kind of Star Trek technology and his whole body has been destroyed. And so Spock is taking him back to Telos so that he can live this illusion again, this illusion of being young and healthy and, virile and and the girls there and the telosians once they they tried to take captain pike captive so he was going to be kind of their their male human to keep in a zoo have a very pleasant life and they i remember this they so they had the girl that they had they had rescued they had the ship's doctor who was a you know, like a standard Star Trek doctor, but a beautiful woman. And then they had this young girl who was only in one Star Trek episode. And they really pushed the boundaries on this one. They said, well, now you have a choice of three women to choose from to be your lifelong companion here in the Telos uh, paradise. You can, of course, have this young woman that we saved and turned into this beautiful woman who wants nothing more than just to please you. Or you can... uh you can bond with the ship's doctor. I don't remember her name. Uh, her advantages are of extreme health um, and incredible intellect. Uh, if she were to ever bond with you, she'd be an excellent partner. Or you can have, you know, Ensign Wilson, whatever her name was, who was a much younger woman. Uh, and she says, Ensign Wilson has always felt you to be out of reach. Uh, but now she understands that the odds of the game have changed. Uh, her advantage. <laughs> Her advantages are youth and unusually strong female drives. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so anyway, who was the writer for that episode? What great writing right there. <laughs> it was great writing. I, I think it was one of the um, Harlan Ellison episodes. Now, well, who did he choose? Well, he didn't choose anybody. He didn't want to be in captivity. That oh. was the th- that that was the thing. the The Talosians didn't understand that humans just can't exist in captivity, even if it's pleasant right. captivity. And <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, there's only one crime that incurs the death penalty in the Federation, and that is taking a ship to Telos Four. So Spock is so loyal to Captain Pike that he's willing to incur the death penalty to get him back to where he can live a much happier life. Right. Anyway, they would, they would, they would show that at every one of these conventions and then they would have uh, like Star Trek poetry sessions and they'd have Star Trek costumes. And man, back then people came up with some pretty interesting costumes. Um, they had the what do they also they have they have a blooper reel. Roddenberry always gave this very um, inspiring speech, you know, like I did, you know I wrote Star Trek to be the uh, harbinger of a new world, you know, a world not defined by limitations and human struggle, but a a world defined by hope and infinite horizons. It was a great speech. After you've heard it five or six times. <laughs> <laughs> it loses a little bit of its uh of its power but i'm sorry i took that way off no it was That's great right. although i will say one thing you said so i am a huge trekkie always have been but you said three words in rapid combination that scare the ever-living shit out of me okay that's unusual star trek poetry <laughs> I can't think of a greater hell on earth than that. Well, oh, I don't know. It was great, JJ. I got to tell you, it really was great because it was <laughs> – here, here's why it was so great. It was poetry written by extremely earnest 19-year-olds who had been <laughs> – you're just digging yourself deeper, man. What the hell? <laughs> you know, and, and they anyway, yes, they had Star Trek poetry. So that can't be any worse than Vogon poetry. Well, so Vogon we'll poetry is fantastic. Have you ever have you ever seen have you ever been somewhere where they had a Vogon poetry contest? No, I haven't. That's a thing. I have been to yes, it's a thing. You go to like Comic Con or something? Somewhere down the hall. <laughs> Down in breakout room seven, they've got the Vogon Poetry Contest. It would be unfair to our faithful paranormal rundown listeners to mention Vogon Poetry without providing a representative sample of that singularly horrific and unique literary niche. However, our insurance carrier will not allow any member of the Paranormal Rundown's permanent staff to read it on the air, as it might cause irreversible brain damage. So, we have negotiated with another podcast to use one of their most hale and hardy employees, someone who, because of their origin, species, and background, probably cannot be harmed by the reading of fog and poetry. I emphasize probably. So here, by special arrangement, 
Courtesy of the Trailer Trash Terrors podcast, straight from Archipelo Way, is Bill Zabubba, former minion of evil. Oh, there, howdy, everybody. This here's Bill Zabubba, former minion of evil. Well, let's see, I'm kind of in a unique position here. They brought me in as a pro from Dover. Remember that movie, uh, Gladiator, where Maximus had been, uh, cutting everybody's heads off and stuff? Well, they bring in this old fella, this big old dude. Looks like a, something like a polar bear with the armor on, and Maximus beats him, too. Well, I'm kind of in that same position. I'm, I'm being brought in as a ringer, somebody who uh, simply cannot be harmed by a Vogon portrait. In fact, I've been reading Vogon poetry for uh, a couple of millennia now. You know, it, didn't, it really did help when uh, you're dragging a soul to perdition that you have some horrible poetry to read to them. They're just ready to, they're happy to get to perdition. So, let's get to the reading. This here poem's called, Thou Ingrown Toenail, by... Palgritch, the perpetually disgruntled. Thou ingrown toenail, you weave your calcite deposits deeper and deeper and deeper into mine calloused bipedal support mechanisms with the percolating ferocity of two libidinous dung birds of Valtravisol sex copulating in their own festering crapulence. Yet I feel not so much sorrow, but rather relief that despite the incessant agony which you inflict upon me continuously, or is that continually, I ask myself, through my miasma of vomit-inducing pain, spelled P-A-I-N, you do not ooze into my breakfast cereal, causing it to turn a virulent green color, which happened to Grogulac when he forcibly lanced his forehead boil. Verily, a replica of the corpulent fire geysers of proper group seven said his mother unkindly. And it heaved and roared and perhaps severed the very fabric of time before dropping like mustard placidly into his daily ration of bran and dungbird skin flakes. Now I sing not to my toenail, but to Gragpluck. Devourer of his own body fluids, brother in torment, and brother in anguish. Boy, that's some good poetry. Just kind of makes you tingle and think about the real meaning of life. I swear, there's almost a tear in, in my eyes. You know, I got four of them there, eyes. I mean, not glasses, I got four real eyes. Okay, I'm going to send you back to the paranormal rundown now and go get my paycheck. Listen, this is something about the human race that I think our show sort of represents a little bit, but it's something that I find fascinating and wonderful. We are incredibly creative. We are creative and funny at the same time. Just just humans in general, we're always looking for something to get into, to be a part of, to make better and create some sort of environment or skit or production. It's, it is a beautiful thing about humanity. And Vogon poetry at Comic-Con, that just is absolutely represents that 100%. <laughs> All right. Um I'm Actually, going to. I'm I've going to. One, go ahead. I got one last thing, if you don't mind. Oh gosh, and no. It's 
something that we don't have to to bring up now. We can stick a pin in it and come back. No, to we're it bringing it up now. Point. <laughs> but it's actually to tack on to both what Dave just said and to go back to this idea of shared stories. And that is the repetition of certain ghost stories across not just a region, but the entire world. Absolutely. Cross cultures. Yeah. Cross cultures. It's, it's, uh, fascinating to me. And the one that always springs to mind is the girl who is looking for a ride. The woman in white or the mm-hmm. the, the, the in distress. The hitchhiker who gets in your car and then disappears and Yes. I heard this story. I still remember it. I was at my Uncle Larry's in Hickman County. Uh I was with two of my cousins, Maria Lynn and Carrie Ann, and Maria, who was a couple of years older than me, she told us this story, and it freaked me the hell out. <laughs> and it's always been a near and dear favorite. But over the years, I have seen this story retold uh, in Jakarta, in Japan, in India, across the U.S., it is just amazing how often I hear this story repeated, like it's the most original thing in the world. It fascinates me. It really does. Well, I think no matter where you go in the world, you've got certain emotions that are very powerful in people's lives. One of them is the desire to be loved, the desire to have someone who's, who's um, faithful to you. And isn't there, aren't a lot of these stories kind of based on the woman who's been treated poorly? Oh, dear Lord, yes. I can't tell you the number of yokai stories that are all, that all have their root in that same exact kind of thing. Okay, so some woman whose husband is, che- or boyfriend or husband is cheated on her, and she probably goes and takes her life. <laughs> and... But but I think it's fantastic that you find these stories everywhere. I bet you they're in Africa. Oh, I can guarantee you that they are. There's there's also a concept that and I you know, I think there's a name for this. Maybe you guys will remember it. I don't. But this concept that once you come up with an idea or a story something that's got a lot of uh, energy and emotion attached to it, that it becomes easier to recreate by others. And have you ever heard that, Vic? You ever heard that theory? Yeah, when it's time to railroad, people will railroad. Sure. There are, it's, yep. the cultural changes occur across cultures across the entire world. Right. And, and without direct contact. Without direct contact, yes. And it's this idea that once this idea is brought into existence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. now it becomes easier to recreate by others who mm-hmm. have never been exposed to it. And 
this could be an absolute example of that, right? Yeah. And and, ghost story in one area, and that mm -hmm. makes it more likely if it's a really good one, it's got a lot of energy around it, a lot of belief around it that, uh, Unfortunately, we have encountered a paranormal rundown wound up recess where the collective IQ of the three hosts, hovering somewhere above 400 points, is, nonetheless, inadequate to keep things running smoothly. That's where I come in, naturally, without the slightest hitch, to bring meaning and information to the otherwise silent and awkward pauses. In a moment, they will discuss the 100th monkey effect which is often thought of as a type of spontaneous transference of knowledge throughout a species or society. This process of knowledge transfer tends to bypass physical barriers, allowing a direct mind-to-mind jump, or, more poetically, a leap in the collective consciousness. But why should I do their work? I may need to renegotiate my contract. So what was it exactly we were talking about before I stopped? I'm sorry. She opened the door, and I know you can hear the sound. I told her in the future we're going to just flicker the lights <laughs> so she can tell me. But uh, I don't remember what we were talking about. I We were talking about creativity. <clears throat> we were talking about creating stuff and it being easier to create. But I don't right. remember where I was with the last bit. So, well, I mean, there, 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 there's a whole. It's okay. I mean, there's a whole set of concepts that have to do with kind of uh, worldwide shared consciousness. Which oh, are God. Uh, don't don't make me go into my Joseph Campbell's evil rant again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, remember, uh, if you ever need some to find the world's greatest Joseph Campbell fan, just write to JJ. And- <laughs> That would be accurate. <laughs> he'll, he'll, he will tell you everything he knows about Joseph Campbell and how much he loves him. Um, <laughs> there's the uh, what's it? What's the thing? The hundredth monkey conjecture. Hmm. Let me look up hundredth monkey. Hundredth monkey. Hundredth monkey effect. Hundredth monkey effect is a. Hypothetical phenomenon in which a new behavior idea spread rapidly by unexplained means from one group to all related groups once a critical number of members of one group exhibit the new behavior or acknowledge the new idea. Hundredth monkey. The behavior was said to propagate even to groups that are physically separated and have no apparent means of communicating with each other. There you go. So it's that same concept. It's that same concept. Very interesting. And of, of course, they go through, <clears throat> and I, I believe if you were to look on the on the full paranormal rundown list, I believe I've got the hundredth monkey concept on there. Okay. Um. But you're but you're right. I mean, well, look for me. I, it, if I ever get to the point where I can't do something creative, man, I'm probably not going to live very long. Because I don't think my mind is going to want to live very long. It doesn't have to be something that the whole world is thinking is the best thing ever, but it has to be something that that fulfills that need. And see, for me, that's problem solving. If I don't have some sort of puzzle to figure out, some sort of challenge that I need to think of a creative solution for, mm-hmm. I'm totally bored. Can't mm-hmm. stand it. 
Oh, that has defined my entire professional career. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's half the stuff in IT is literally just puzzles. You know, that's it the really challenge. Is. That's the fun of it. And yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Well, now, so what do you think? Do we have more on the folk magic and things JJ has seen, or should we move on to a lighter topic? <laughs> Uh, such as the Antichrist. <laughs> I am fine to move on. I'm fine to move on too. So let me tell you, I've done on my podcast. Uh, I've had two episodes in a row about the Antichrist, <clears throat> and I'm working on a third one, and it has really, really bogged me down. And I think I kind of told JJ the idea. Tell, just shut me up here if I'm going someplace you don't want me to go. But the uh, the idea is that there have to be test runs for the Antichrist. So instead of it covering the whole world, there's a test run that just covers a small town in Ohio or Louisiana or Brazil or someplace. And all of those various elements of the apocalypse happen in that little town. So like a little proof of concept, a little proof of concept, antichrist and um, the, uh, the antichrist for the, the fictional episode that I'm trying like a bear to get finished. But you ever just run into a situation where you just have a real hard time finishing something. Oh, dear Lord, yes. <laughs> yeah, don't don't ask my wife about that. Okay, that's, that describes I mean, about three quarters of the projects I'm working on right now. It's, I mean, it's just a matter of you just get to a point, and then just like you're just banging your head against concrete. Um, anyway, the Antichrist in that story is uh, Charlie Monroe, who's a automatic transmission repair man. Um, not the brightest guy in the world, but. He's the one who's chosen to be chosen to be the Antichrist in this little town. Um, what I will tell you is that in researching for all this, there is almost no topic in all of the paranormal world and all of the religious world and all of the uh, uh, ethical world that is more confusing, con- confusing and harder to pin down than the Antichrist. It's it's a topic that just means whatever the hell anybody wants it to mean. Now, JJ, have you heard the last episode that uh, that Vic did on the Antichrist? No, I have not yet. I, I'm still playing catch up on so many different things. I apologize, but no apologies needed. Yeah, no, <laughs> we just no, we, I, I we had a lot of fun it. with it. It was uh, it was a really interesting conversation that. That went well all over the place as as usual, but um, I think the outcome was fascinating. So before we get to your, because I really want you to talk about your final concept that was in that show, Vic JJ. What are your thoughts on the Antichrist? So I have been slowly constructing an episode on the Antichrist from a quote-unquote biblical perspective. And it's, 
it's kind of interesting. But let me let me start off my my thoughts with just a, a simple question. If you had to name a book of the Bible that talks the most about the Antichrist, what would you say that is? Um uh, well John. John one, John two. Um isn't there some in Timothy and I don't think there's very much at all in Revelation about it. And 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 that's the thing. There's zero mention of an Antichrist in Revelation. Yeah. It's only in first John, second John, mm-hmm. um, and then some post biblical literature. And Aren't there some references under a different name in the Old Testament in some of the prophets' works no. towards the end? Now, I mean, well, they certainly wouldn't be using the word antichrist. No, no, they, they, yeah. they don't. But uh, it seemed yeah. like there was a <clears throat> a character mentioned, and and I don't remember. I'd have to look it up. But. So, like Ezekiel has Gog of Magog, that's mentioned as Israel's final enemy. Uh, you've got Daniel, in which you've got the the evil king or evil tyrant, that's kind of the final enemy. Uh, so yeah, you do have some ideas of that, but the, even the word antichristos, uh, it uh, it began as the word antitheos in Homer, which just means godlike. There's no idea of anti as in against. That is more folk etymology that kind of wrapped into this entire concept, uh, which is then, uh, you know, the opposite of or against. That's just where the basic idea rolled into play on. Uh, yeah, I, there's so many like stupid, and I am, I was, I'll be the first one to admit that. I am not a Christian scholar. Uh, the further down the academic rabbit hole that you happen to get shoved down, the more specialized you're forced to become because there's just an absolute plethora of source material and secondary material that you have to know in order to know what the heck you're talking about in any reasonable form. So I was firmly in the Second Temple Judaism kind of bucket, and I rarely deviated outside of that besides a few classes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, besides kind of these overall hits, that's kind of where, where my knowledge of the Antichrist begins and ends. I will say that growing up in you know the the belt buckle of the Bible belt, I have heard the concept used and abused throughout my entire life, uh, and it's usually with a combination of horribly um, misreferenced ideas that you find in Revelation cross applied to modern day life, whether it be barcodes or whatever the heck else is going on. But well, so, I'm not a fan. It, it, so is it not fair to say that the reference to the beast in Revelations is, is not sort the same. of 
assumed as the Antichrist? Are you saying that's in not the Antichrist? Mu- in much that's of Christianity, what, it's definitely assumed as the Antichrist. But it's assumed to be, but uh, so the idea of the Antichrist didn't really kind of pick up <clears throat> until after second um, second century. Mm-hmm. Within that time period, these were just viewed <laughs> to be um, enemies of God, it, but it was not meant to be an, an antichrist per se. Uh-huh. But in modern or even a medieval to modern retellings, those all kind of got blurred together, just kind of how Milton's idea got blended together with Genesis. And now it's really hard for modern people to say, oh, yeah, well, this is the actual, you know, biblical story versus, oh, no, this is what Milton actually wrote. So, Well, I'm just going to go on a limb and say that a large number of and I, I I don't mean it insultingly. It's just the it's just an accurate term. Low information Christians don't even know the Milton know that the Milton story is part of all this. True. This is you know not insulting anyone. It's just that they never took the time or had the need to gain that knowledge. Yeah, who's Milton? <laughs> you guys laugh. I'm one of the low information Christians there, Vic. Well, I mean, you know, Paradise Lost, the the whole story of um you know, the, the multiple levels of hell and the freezing lake and you know, that all all the depiction of hell that people have in their mind, most of that comes from Milton. Is that correct, JJ? Uh, that's correct. Yeah, okay, I mean, so you're 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 talking about a, a literary interpretation of what's in the Bible. I'm I'm my most of my let's call it theology is based on just reading the Bible. <laughs> have you ever seen Animal? Have you ever seen the movie Animal House? A long time ago. Okay, so Donald Sutherland is this professor who likes to diddle his students and. He's trying to teach Milton, and he says something like, hey, look, I know. I find Milton as boring as you find Milton. Even Mrs. Milton found Milton boring. (laughs) 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 So, but, but yeah, I mean, that whole idea of the, you know, a, a horrible place where souls go for eternal torture. That's pretty much laid out in Milton. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, I, I mean, I I don't have a uh, a strong opinion on what hell is. Uh, in 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 my view, I've I've heard a a theory that uh, you know hell is essentially being separated from God. That there is a an absence of God there, and that is the punishment. I I don't know no. Well, that's tied the only, to anything other than it's that's, not that's quite the only definition that makes any sense to me. Look, the whole <clears throat> you know, I, I'm a lousy, uh, I guess I'm a lousy Christian in terms of you know, this fear for my eternal soul. I ain't got an eternal mind, I can't think in terms of eternal. Most weeks, I can't think in terms of next Thursday. 
<laughs> yeah, this is, I understand that. You know, I, I just, that whole idea of thinking of myself as something eternal, that's very, very hard for me. You know, I was having a discussion the other day uh, that part of the issue with modern Christianity is what preachers taught when I was growing up, uh, and I'm sure afterwards, in their interpretation of what the Bible meant and how we should live. When you read the Bible and you take it for what it says, it doesn't say the majority of what is preached. No, not by at all. many of the hellfire and brimstone right. no, not at preachers, all. right? Now, there are some really hard truths to accept in the Bible. There are some very difficult things and implications and rules and things that we're supposed to follow as Christians. But the all of that, you know, you're going to hell preaching was way overblown and you know, made for effect, not based on just pure biblical, you know, teachings. And it gives it a bad name, unfortunately. It does, but I will say that growing up Southern Baptist, I am a fine connoisseur of hellfire and brimstone speakers. <laughs> you can you can you can rank them. <laughs> oh, oh yes. I There's the heard. fire and brimstone hall of fame. But even beyond that though, um I, I will say this and this is it's a little bit off topic, so shut me up if you want me to. I I don't care what major division or denomination that anyone happens to belong to. But whatever it is, I strongly pray that it is one that believes in a firm, unified education for the priesthood or the leadership of said denomination. Because I have so I have been a part of some offshoot branches of Protestant churches. And this happens everywhere, not just with Paul. I'm not picking on any one place. In which shit is just magically conjured up from thin air uh-huh. and spoken about as if it was gospel. I went to one church that went on a mission trip for this church to Detroit. First time I'd ever been there. Came back, and the preacher sat there and gathered the entire church together and told us that, you know, you have a guardian angel. And if you do not make it, to the gates of heaven, then your guardian angel will be kicked out and thrown into limbo for all eternity. And what denomination was this person? Supposedly Southern Baptist, but it just uh, where the, the hell they're coming up with from. This stuff? They all blend together. There is literally no difference between 
a pro between a Presbyterian and a Southern Baptist, or I mean, there's only the extreme, like a Church of Christ, or uh, really kind of stand out. But otherwise, they all just kind of blend together. Of oh, if I if you read the Bible, then you're going to understand what the heck is going on. Well, and here is the problem. So I went through a long search for a church near me a couple years back. And this is after I finished reading the Bible, after my experience. And each of these denominations, Protestant or uh, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Southern Baptist, they each have a, a biblical doctrine that they publish uh, of what their beliefs are. And there are differences in them. Yes, Some are significant. Um you know, for example, with the Presbyterians, there's the the belief of predetermination, and I have issue with that. Right? I, I I have issue with the idea that God has decided ahead of time. Well, you're going to heaven. You're going to hell. Kind of a Calvinist thing, right? Uh, well, and this is pre predetermination is in the Presbyterian doctrine. I didn't know that. I didn't either until I did the research on it, and it's so. It's never been a it's never been a thought process that I can even begin to get my mind around. Yeah, I, you know, it's my my personal belief that God lays out the opportunity, and the choices we make are what get us there or not. Um, you know, I I don't think that it's predetermined uh, what where you're going to wind up, but that's just me. But that's also not something that I, I grew up for a good period of time in a Presbyterian church, and I never <laughs> heard that once. They don't talk about that doctrine in the sermons, not like that. It's, it's not like the most churches, at least in the South, don't sit there and talk about, well, this is what we believe about this, and this is what they believe about that. The sermon is the moment for the preacher to get up there and pull some Bible verses together with a common current event problem, whatever he's trying to preach against, and to get tell some a story. kind of idea across. And to get an idea across. He's telling a story, mm -hmm. he's using Bible behind it to, to emphasize it. But they're not talking about doctrine, they're not talking about core beliefs. And, and many of these preachers irrespective of what denomination they're in, stray way off of that doctrine to tell those stories. And I think that's what JJ is seeing, right? You're, you're seeing this stuff that's taught and preached where it doesn't matter which denomination they come from. It's just wrong. Yep. Or not, not even that. I mean, I would, I, I'm not trying to be blunt or, or hypercritical, but I would be surprised if the vast majority of preachers that take on a, you know, this type of role within small rural churches even know what the doctrines of their particular denomination happen to be. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. They're a, a localized cult of personality. In fact, this phenomenon of, especially in the South, of celebrating these extremely young kids 
that, you know, are then kind of shoved up in front of the uh, the congregation and, you know, oh, they speak the word of God and they're allowed to preach and everything else when they don't know. It is my firm belief that, yes, you can gather inspiration from whatever you happen to read. That is perfectly fine. Mm-hmm. The idea that you can pick up a Bible and just understand it is ludicrous to me. Now, you can cross-apply things to a modern day, and you can try to get an interpretation that kind of matches, but to, to say that, oh, you understand exactly what this is saying without the proper education, I, I would be sorely pressed to agree with you. Where do you think, I mean, you're talking, this guy came up with some not general, but a very specific doctrine saying, you've got a guardian angel, which first off, I'm not really, I can't think of anything biblically that supports that. No, nope, There, there is a Catholic belief of a guardian angel, and it is based on scripture, but it's a, a loose interpretation yeah. of scripture. I, I, I've <clears throat> seen it recently, uh, and I can't remember you know what the scripture was but but it is based on a scriptural concept okay well all right so somebody found something in the bible that they can stretch to mean that you have a guardian angel uh, which by the way i have never heard a southern baptist or other baptist preacher preach about guardian angels oh no ever. this was the first one for me as well <laughs> But go ahead. Sorry, I just I I just want to say I I have heard it. I've heard it in Catholic terms, not in Baptist terms. Um, well, I mean, then he's taking that further, saying, "Hey, look, if you screw up and don't make it to heaven, then um, the one who's really going to get punished is your guardian angel." <laughs> Yep, just to double down on just that. Just to double down on that. So if you don't care about your own soul, then by golly, keep your guardian angel out of limbo. So I think the most recent I've heard on this was with uh, the podcast, The Spirit Realm, with Adam Bly. I've heard uh, of it. I haven't listened to it. it. He trains exorcists for the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, he's not an exorcist himself. Um but they had this podcast, and the the woman on it, and I cannot remember her name offhand. Uh, I'll look it up. But she has a, a lot of uh, background on angels. And so they were talking about guardian angels on this podcast frequently. And one of the questions that they covered in a recent episode was, what happens to the guardian angel when you die? Mm-hmm. And the idea was the guardian angel becomes your best friend in heaven. And mm. if you don't go to heaven and you go to hell, then the guardian angel just returns to God. To be uh, recycled to another soul. I suppose. Although I think, See, that, yeah, I, I'm not sure. I can't tell you how problematic I've always found these very specific theologies. You know, of, you know, what happens when, where, in what order, um, that kind of thing. 
I've never seen any logical path to get to those points. And that's always kind of been my rule that, yes, I believe deeply in God. I'm going to live my life as if there is a God, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to come up with just ridiculously silly bits of theology to get me in one particular space. Right. Tick some people off. <laughs> Tick some people off. Yeah, the but, uh, the woman's name on the podcast is Debbie. I, I don't remember her last name, but they do talk about that guardian angels um, in in their. In fact, they had an episode come out today. They talk about it, but uh, I haven't listened yet. But I I do, and and I guess you know this is my own personal issues somewhat with Catholicism. Is I think a lot of the Catholic tradition is built on stuff that is interpreted out of scripture but not explicitly stated in scripture and you know i am sure that there are plenty of protestant denominations that have built stuff out on that too which is why i tend to prefer a protestant denomination that is that is fairly scriptural right and that's based on you know what everything's based on well, let me try to reel this back in a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> we, we started talking about the Antichrist. Okay, now, whatever that word means, Antichristos, whether it simply just means uh, those who refuse to confess the divinity of Christ, those who work actively against Christ, whatever, the the current modern view of the Antichrist is as pretty much as an individual that has tremendous power <clears throat> in the world, tremendous abilities, um, and is capable of solving many problems at the expense of total fealty and slavery of people. Is that close? I think that's what... It has come to mean what it has come to mean. Okay, so I guess I'm talking about the the current cultural interpretation of the Antichrist. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, I mean that that that's a pretty good starting point for a lot of fiction. A pretty good starting point for. I mean, I don't know if either of you've ever read the uh, the Chick tracts, Jack Jack Chick. No. No. Oh man. <laughs> Okay, assignment. After the show, after we do this, some point in the next few days, look up Jack Chick and read a few Jack Chick tracks. Jack Chick is a very fundamentalist Christian who sometime in the late 50s started writing these little mm, 15, 16 page pamphlets that uh, people could give out for witnessing. And they're great. They're, some of them are utterly bonkers. Um, but, um, but they are absolutely great. So, so and anyway, he's, he's got many about the antichrist in there. Um, I remember one where, you know, it's the, the mark of the beast and everybody's got the mark, you know, most people have the mark of the beast, but they're actively seeking out those people who don't have the mark of the beast and try to participate in commerce. And there's this great scene of, Oh, I've got one here. And you know, all that suddenly the, the Antichrist police come for him on these motorcycles. They're motorcycle police, but they're motorcycles that have guillotines mounted on the back. And so they're, 
dragging this guy who. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I'm just trying to visualize it, right? I used to ride a motorcycle. I'm thinking, okay, well, well it's like it's like a, a big top heavy. Well, it's like but... a big Harley Davidson uh, <laughs> tricycle motorcycle, like a cop might use. But instead of there being sirens, there's a guillotine on the back, and the per the purpose of the guillotine is to behead those people without the mark who are trying to buy or sell. Need to have that. <laughs> You need to have a, a compartment as a head catcher on the yeah. side, right? So when you lop them off, okay, yeah, <coughs> all right, cool. <laughs> so anyway, I mean, it, uh, part of the problem to me is that where is the value in the whole idea of the Antichrist? Because it's certainly not in some of the silly movies that they come up with now. And I think Jack Chick with his idea of, you know, motorcycle police with guillotines on the back of their motorcycles. I think that's a little over the top. Um, but where is the theologically meaningful way of studying that concept? Don't have an answer. Well, so, so back to the beast then. Mm -hmm. So if the beast isn't the antichrist, then let's just talk about the beast and Revelation as a whole, because mm -hmm. that character is what we talked about a lot in in your show, Vic. Where yeah, we, yeah. That's a, we discussed that's, that's that's what's in people's mind is the, you know the so the creature Satan's that's champion on mm -hmm. Earth who mm -hmm. is leading the charge, you know. Uh, consolidating the world under one power for the purposes of following Satan. Whatever mm -hmm. that is, whoever that is, the beast, that character. So, so JJ, what would you think about that just as a concept? That's scriptural. It's written. I think you have made comments once or twice before about, eh, I don't know about Revelation. <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's not that I don't know about it. It's the fact that I believe that's probably the most horrifically abused book of the of the Christian New Testament. That's a good okay. thing to talk about. But I'm not saying that I disagree with it. Well, I wasn't um, saying you were. I just know you've mentioned, and I think that's exactly what you said before. I, I couldn't remember yeah. the exact words, but it's the most abused. So, So what do you mean by that? The fact that, so the entire book of Revelation, at least uh, according to me and a lot of commentaries that you happen to, that have been written about it, like very authoritative, academically based commentaries tend to agree that nigh on every single number in that book is nothing more than symbolic. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. those numbers have been taken to be actual truth. You know, only 144,000 will ever enter into the gates of heaven. Well, that means only 144,000, period. That is, if, if there is ever a number that screams symbolism, then that would be one of them. Well, hang on. Um, so, hang on. The 144,000, though, wasn't the number to enter heaven was it i thought that was the 
uh, the number to be raptured. Uh, something like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, no, I, I thought yeah. it was the number to enter heaven. That's what I was working for. I thought it was heaven. Yeah. I thought it was I the number to enter heaven. I'm oh. not saying I'm not. Okay. No, no, that's, that's fine. That's fine. I, but going back, so, but in terms of the answer, so in terms of the figures that are often confused as to being the Antichrist, uh, in Revelation, you've got, um, you've got the dragon, also called the old serpent or Satan. And right. then there were two beasts, not one. There is uh, a beast, uh, which was never identified, just the beast. And then there was a second beast, which is the beast of the land, also called the false prophet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's that illusion of the false prophet that has been rolled into this entire mythos of the Antichrist that we identify any time after the second second, uh, century has been kind of the identifying mark of what the Antichrist is. Well, <clears throat> man, that's a big silence. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> that's a big silence. Well, I, I didn't have anything to say. I didn't know what to. I didn't how, know how to respond to that. Yeah, I'm just thinking of where to go with that, right? So, let's well, take the Malachi Martin used to talk about the Antichrist. Okay. He did. I mean, he would talk about the Antichrist as a a being, a a human being. And Art Bell and Jansen and these other people would say, well, Father Martin, do you believe the Antichrist is alive? And in his wonderful Irish voice, he'd say, well, yes, I do believe the Antichrist is alive somewhere here on Earth. So a Catholic priest, he was thinking of the Antichrist as a person. Yeah, and and that doesn't rightfully surprise me. Um, In a lot of exorcists that I have heard or read interviews of or by or from, whatever preposition works there, Mm -hmm. a lot of them purport to have a quote-unquote biblical mindset that Mm -hmm. whatever the Bible lays out, that is the only thing that is allowable to believe. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, that makes a lot of sense because, and not so, I mean, it, it's argued in quite a few places in the Bible, but there's this, ever since the Second Temple, there has been this running commentary that. We are living in the end times, and this has become a defining characteristic of Second Temple Judaism and of Christianity, and you find it all over the place. I mean, heck, there's some idiotic um, theory out there right now that there's this one group out there going, yeah, the rapture is going to happen June 25th or 22nd or whatever. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's always this particular group. I mean, uh, you know, every and, – and when it doesn't happen on June 25th, then they'll come and say, well, we didn't get the math quite right. Exactly. Listen, I have good authority that it's on August 15th, so I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, my God, the Seven Day Adventists have made an entire career out of doing this. You know, it's right. Yeah. You know, anyway, I, I am not criticizing any particular religion. By the way, don't write me hate letters or anyone else hate letters, please. Oh, they can write me hate letters. Yeah, they can write me all the hate letters they want. I find them entertaining, but. I think the question comes down to, and and this is like we talked about for the uh, the weekly discussion point on Discord, JJ. Um, how allegorical is scripture? Right, All right when you're looking at, um, when you're looking at revelations, and you say, okay, well, I don't think the exact number is one hundred and forty four thousand. Okay, so. Maybe the number is a lot, but not all. So it's representative of a large number of people, but not everybody gets there. And, you know, seven uh, seals, maybe it's not exactly seven, but there are some key things that are going to happen. So the question then becomes, at what point does it stop becoming uh representative of something and become what's literally going to happen and i think it really it depends on how you take the book so to me i mean if you really believe that this book is canon that it's deserving of being in the Bible itself. And I am not disagreeing that it should stay, it, that it deserves to be where it is. I'm not saying that by any stretch of the imagination. And and by that book, you mean Revelation specifically? Exactly. Okay. The, the, the spirit in which I take things is that the author, or more likely authors, because it's more likely came from a school rather than just an individual, that mm-hmm. produced this work received a vision from God. And it was a vision that they could not adequately explain, or they didn't understand the vast majority thereof. Right. And so, what do they have to go off from? They have previous. Biblical references. Mm-hmm. They have ideas that were floating around at the time, and they have symbolism. And probably and so, to a certain degree, their own language and creativity. Exactly. And so they write this thing in order to explain what they received. And now you have purists that are attempting to create doctrine based upon an interpretation that is something that was only put out there to try to communicate whatever inspiration they had received from the Most High. Mm -hmm. And that is... That's why I say it's probably the most horrifically abused book of the Bible. Because if, and this is a lot of ifs in there, so I I freely acknowledge that. 
But if this really was a vision, and these, the person, and I'll just say it kindly, just say person who wrote the book, really did receive some type of vision. They're trying to explain it. They used the best tools of their capacity in order to do so. Uh-huh. And now people are trying to pick that apart and come out with strict dogma or precautions or rules, like, you know, for things to do and what not to do based upon interpretation and symbolism. That's never going to lead to a really good situation. Well, I mean, also, I think one of the things is, and I've heard several scholars talk about this, is we're too stupid to understand exactly what they're saying. In that the author, John of Patmos, would have expected the people reading his works to have read quite a bit of previous literature to understand the uh, the language patterns of the time, to understand the stories, to understand the references. We don't understand any of that. And I, I think that's true for <clears throat> most of what is carried forth. And this is one of the reasons why I say just trying to understand, just picking up a Bible and just reading it and thinking that you're going to understand everything about it is a fool's errand without any outside of research because there is so much sits and lebens going on. There's so many ideas that that word again. Huh? Say that word again. Oh, sits and lebens. Well, it's a German phrase. I, I know, and, me, but yeah. 90% of the audience is saying, uh, yeah, that's true. Is right. saying what did JJ just say there? I think he <laughs> said, sits and lebens, and uh, that's chairs and love, or something. Like, what, what, what does he say? <laughs> yeah, it's just kind of commonly explained as uh, the, the, understanding the situation, or the, the situation's um, circumstances. Okay, okay. So if you are a nurse who has worked in critical care for years and you see a specific set of symptoms, you understand the situation almost immediately. Exactly. But if you are a student who's never been in ICU, you don't have any freaking idea of what's going on at all. Or to put it into historical uh, context, we, if we watch a, like, for example, uh, I think this is a really good way of putting that. I've heard someone say this recently. If someone was to mention the year 2020 Uh and you watch a whole bunch of stuff about it from videos and because, you know, especially video platforms would severely curtail or even demonetize, uh, you know, videos that directly mentioned the pandemic or, you know, coronavirus or whatever it may have been, Uh a lot of people eliminated that word from their vocabulary when they were talking about it. Uh So you watch a whole bunch of this stuff and you get a sense that, yeah, something strange had happened, but I can't really find a direct reference. (laughs) I can't really tell what it is. (laughs) Exactly. And so that, I mean, it's kind of that knowledge of the present day, Everyone understands what you're talking about, but once you get removed, even just 20 years, but especially if you're removed from a it thousand for a thousand years, yes. you have no bloody idea what in the world is going on or what it's truly trying to talk about. 
Well, I think you're right about that. Yeah, I think that there's there's definitely lost understanding because of situational historic references that you should get. But I don't think the majority of the Bible depends on you knowing that. I think that there's a lot you can get out of reading the Bible as is um, without having to have a degree in theology or ancient languages. Um, I'm not saying that there's not that. uh, So I, I would agree with you in large part. I mean, it's not like you can't understand the words. It's not like the basics cannot be gleaned from what you're reading. But this idea that you can understand everything there is to understand, so it's not just understanding the basics or getting the most of it. It's this idea that I have encountered in a lot of Protestant thinking that you don't need any kind of education, that you can just pick up the Bible and read it and understand it perfectly. That's what I take objection to. That's fair. Um, I I will say that that is probably why, you know, the emphasis on Sunday school and Bible studies during the week in the Protestant churches happen is to assist with understanding parts of the Bible that are, are more complex or cover, tackle more complicated concepts. Uh, but I also, you know, see, I struggle on the other side with the idea that the the catechism and the Catholic tradition is uh, well-founded and, you know, it's built on years and years of historic understanding as well. And most Protestants tend to go back to, you know, sola scriptura, which is all that other stuff is stuff people made up. The Bible was inspired by God. Um, there's a balance there. And I think oh, there is. everybody has to find their own level of that balance. But it's not easy. Either way, no, you're right. <laughs> the last thing I'm doing is trying to recommend, you know, one way or over the other. I am not proselytizing. I am not saying only my way is the right way. <laughs> <laughs> I would actually shudder if someone thought the way that I, I think. Well, so. <laughs> I think uh, just so so that we're clear, JJ, the – one of the big values that you add here in any of these conversations is the academic understanding of scripture, right? I mean, you add a a great deal of value because you've studied it in much more depth than anybody that I personally know. And so when you talk about these things, it has a a good deal of weight to it. I, I don't want to minimize that at all. No, so I agree. Uh, 
I, oh, I, I didn't think that you were in any stretch of the imagination. Well, you don't have to worry about good, that. <laughs> but, but my point is, is that that is, you're about as authoritative on scripture as we have. <laughs> you know, oh, God help you. <laughs> I, I've read the Bible and I read it in a time of need and I read it, you know, end to end, except for most of Psalms. Got bogged down, had to skip Got that. Bogged part. down in Psalms? Really? <laughs> I did, you know, I, ah. and story for another time. But, um, you know, I have, of all the books, probably the hardest time I have is, is Revelation. And it's because I understand. it's so out there, right? But I get the basic concepts. Well, look, I get the basic concepts too, but I just get to the point where I, either of you science fiction guys? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Heinlein? Yep. Yeah, we talked about that one in uh, the first one, I think. Yeah, well, Heinlein. Okay, so Heinlein wrote The Number of the Beast. Um. Number of the beast. And his idea was 666 really means six to the sixth to the sixth power. And that's the number of, of accessible parallel universes. That's a big number. Uh, but I got to some point in the number of the beast where he's talking about the fact that they should be pushing incest with very talented mathematicians. So that um, if a mathematician has a very mathematically talented daughter, that he should be able to have children with her because then you would have an even more powerful mathematician. <laughs> that good old Heinlein and his – And Heinlein uh, yeah, can get pretty damn weird. But, his sex and, fetishes, right? And that was the point I just threw the book across the room and said, sorry, Robert, you were good for a while, but you've lost it. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah, and, and and so when I get to the part of Revelation that talk, starts talking about, and I'm I'm making this up because I don't remember it verbatim, but you know I saw a dragon who had seven heads of lambs, and you know suddenly grew horns, and it, it just goes into this ridiculous, very specific comic book depiction of something. It has no meaning for me at all. And I'm, and I know that I could go through and find various interpretations of that, and have people tell me exactly what that means. But I, in my heart of hearts, have a hard time believing they're any less confused about that than I am. That's probably true. Yep. Yeah, and I, that's, I guess that's an arrogant statement, or maybe it's not. It's just saying, look, I don't have any idea what this person is talking about. I'm not sure anybody alive has any idea. I'm sure there are people who tell me they do, but. <laughs> Well, I tell you what, I think we have to rein this back into one last thought around the Antichrist. Okay, you, you call it. So the, the one thing, and, and JJ, you mentioned this earlier on, about people misunderstanding and worrying about barcodes. But the one thing about the, that we talked about in this other, other podcast was uh, the idea of the mark of the beast. And the beast, you know, who could be the Antichrist and um, and having to do with technology today. And Vic had an idea and I absolutely loved it. So, Vic, tell him your idea. Oh, you're doing such a good job. Um, <laughs> but it's not my idea. I'm just I'm just a big fan. No, of it. I, I don't think it's my idea. It's just something that makes makes sense to me. I mean, the Antichrist, the beast 
uh, has to have tremendous administrative skills. I mean, there has to be a way of tracking everybody who has the mark. And how do you determine how do you determine that's a real mark and not a uh, uh, a false mark? And how do you determine everybody who's actually declared fealty and all of this? And really, the only thing capable of doing that is some kind of Skynet artificial intelligence computer system that's capable of understanding every bit of humanity, understanding everything that's happening across the world, understanding all of that and directing resources where needed. You know, where do I send my guillotine equipped cop cars today? Um, (laughs) The, I mean, to me, that's, that's the natural culmination of all of this. I mean, if you think about everybody who's been accused of being the Antichrist, let's just go through them. Okay. I mean, let's start with Napoleon. We can go to Hitler. We can go to uh, Mao. There are people who called Paul Pot the Antichrist. There are people who called uh, Saddam Hussein the Antichrist. Don't forget Donald uh, Trump. Don't forget Donald Trump. Don't forget. <laughs> don't, don't forget Barack Obama. Don't forget King Charles. Don't forget Queen Elizabeth. You know anybody that well, you can't forget what the actual number comes from, which is Nero. Nero, yes, of course, Nero. Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah, Nero is the that's the original beast number. But see, all of these candidate antichrist had a problem, and thus that they're human and they die, and they cannot. You know, for a short period of time, they can accumulate a tremendous amount of power and capability. But in the end, they're just humans. They're they're not, you know, given my view of what the world is, capable of being more than just an antichrist. You know, in a, in a long string of antichrists, to get to something that really has the capability of uh, controlling the world like that, you need Skynet. You need a self-aware, sentient, possibly sapient system that transcends what any human being can do or any group of humans can do. Did that say that reasonably well there, Dave? Yeah, I think so. And, and when we talked about it, my, my point was we don't know. You know. So if you assume, let's assume for the moment that the Antichrist exists today. Antichrist has been born or is Mm -hmm. on the planet and on the rise. The Mm -hmm. point that I made was that right now he's got to be an unknown. Mm -hmm. He he can't be somebody that's known because the world today is too polarized and the Antichrist brings most of the people together. Mm -hmm. They support him. They take his mark willingly. And yes, I'm sure some would do that knowing they're prolonging their life a little bit longer because it basically says if you don't get the bark, you die. So if you, you know, if you get the mark, you're damning yourself, but you get to live a little bit longer. I'm sure there are some that would make that choice, but I think most people buy into it because the Antichrist will be understandable, charismatic, he's solved the big problems, right? Mm-hmm. And they are a fan. Mm-hmm. And nobody today is a fan to both sides of the political realm. And, you know, while there are more than one facets, majority, there's two sides of the political realm. Yeah, so generally. the 
AI idea was perfect because here is something that can represent itself to whatever population it needs to in a different way. Mm-hmm. It can take on the face of somebody in India. It can take the face mm-hmm. of somebody in Russia or France or the United States. It can speak with their accent, speak in parables that are based on their history because it has all of that information. And so it can become the trusted solution to all of our problems. And the let's face it, the, the general AI is billed as a savior of the planet or the damnation of the planet because it's going to kill everybody. One of the two, but it could solve all of our problems. And I can see people having hope in something like that. Uh, so I, I loved the idea of, of AI as the Antichrist. We were trying to figure out, JJ, if there was anywhere in the Bible that said that the Antichrist had to be human. Uh, no, there, there's not. I mean, there's only like two specific references within the Bible. The rest of it is, you know, those are so generalized, it's not even funny. So there's nothing that says it has to be human. But I, I like the idea that it, not even it has to be AI. Um, I think I know who the Antichrist is. It's something that may, that it is computerized. So it is a system. Uh, I really like that idea, and it makes life so convenient. I think that we all know that our new overlord is Amazon Prime. <laughs> yeah, Amazon Prime. Yeah, that's right. Another good <laughs> yeah. candidate. I like it, JJ. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I, uh... Hey, and guess what? You cannot buy or sell on Amazon without an ID. That's right. You can. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I, I, you know, so yeah, it just goes on and on and on. But, um, if you extend this to the idea of digital currency, I mean, just look at China right now. Unless you have WeChat, you can't buy or sell. It's almost nearly impossible to do that. Um, and, you know, and if every single country gets locked into a digital currency. Tell me what WeChat is. I don't know what that is. Uh, WeChat is a specific Chinese application mm-hmm. that is at once a messenger and a marketplace and a digital currency. Uh, it's just a way to buy and sell along with everything else. And it, ha- it literally, be- it- it's the end-all be-all of Chinese social media. Now, is this what they've integrated their social score with? No, but that will become kind of a backbone to that. Okay. So it's separate right now, but okay. Yeah. So, so from my point of view, uh, digital currency is eventually the method that the Antichrist will use to control the buy and sale of goods. So that is how that portion of scripture would be managed. And so it's certainly a component of it. Uh, but I, if you think of the AI, or if you think of the Antichrist as something that has a personality and has uh, 
what's the right word I'm searching for here, has autonomy, right? Mm -hmm. It is a self-guided thing or personality, then I think a generalized AI could fit that bill. And then obviously the generalized AI that's going to save us from climate change and war and disease and pestilence, uh, well, in order to do that, they certainly need to manage our currency. So tying in our the AI taking control of our digital worldwide currency would make perfect sense. I hope I'm dead by then. <laughs> Well, well, I don't know how far down the road that is. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I really uh, look. You, you can think less of me. I don't want to live in this world where every aspect of my life is controlled. I would rather go live out in the woods of Canada and eat muskrats. Hey, I hear they're good fried. I'm, I'm, I'm there with you on that one. I mean, I would um, rather look at least, you know, when I get up in the morning, I've got a purpose. I got to go find me a muskrat uh, or a bear or a moose or something. I've got to find something to eat and uh, I've got to keep things from eating me. And I have to try to make alliances with any other humans that have decided that they don't want to be totally controlled. That's right. There's at least there would at least be honor in that kind of life. And if I die, okie dokie. People have been dying for a long time. Uh, it's like I've said, I've never really want to hasten that death, but I'm not afraid of it. And I don't want to live in the dystopian world where every aspect of my life and thought and time and love and hope and soul is controlled. Now, it may be you. that... The it may be that the systems that are capable of doing that are so inherently fragile that they can be so easily sabotaged that that never happens. Don't know. Yeah, I don't know about that. Well, right now, the internet is held together with tape and bubble gum. Tape so. and bubble gum. Yeah, tape and bubble gum. Yeah. So, and so, uh, but however, I will say that the advancements in DevOps principles that have erupted within just the past seven years have made a great deal of that much more substantial. And the thing that really kind of pissed me off is, did y'all follow any of these CEOs and other business people speaking in front of um, Congress? the other week no, no I you know i wanted to listen to some of it but i haven't gotten around to it it was enraging because? uh you had uh the uh the ceo of open ai and then you had uh like the maybe the responsibility manager something from ibm there and they were talking of, of oh yeah we're really scared of you know, how quickly this has come on and this is going to be hugely disruptive. It's you guys' jobs to, you know, to figure out how we're going to deal with this. But there was no bloody responsibility um, from these individuals as they were talking. They were throwing up all the warning signs 
And yes, I mean, you can't just pull the plug on this stuff because once it's out there, even if you wash your hands of it, it, you, it would require everyone to wash their hands of it. And that's never going to happen. Once the devil's out of the bag, it's, it's always going devil's to be out of the bag. Out of the bag. Back. Yeah. No, they've been talking about this regulate AI development for a while now. And the reality is, is it'll never happen. The only thing that could potentially happen is that the government assumes control of the AI development projects because the which, government which is, is an idea not, I'm going to love. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the government is not going to allow the AI, the, the push towards a general AI to stop because China is not going to stop. Russia is not going to stop. Exactly. No other countries are going to stop. And the first one to get there wins. What and is there? To a generalized AI that is super intelligent. Because a generalized AI. So we're talking we're talking the cyber electronic god. Correct. Okay. So so Elon Musk's <clears throat> point is you better figure out how to work with this thing. Because it's going to be developed, and once it's developed, what we have to do is minimize the chance that it's going to destroy us. We have to make ourselves relevant to the generalized AI. Now, whether you agree with Elon or not on his philosophies, there's some truth there, right? We are. He doesn't have philosophies. Okay, <laughs> I, 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 not not trying to start that that discussion. I, no, I, no, I, no. My, my but, point is that you, when you, when that statement is an accurate one, we are creating something that has the potential to cause great harm whether it be through communications that are manipulative or through outright control of systems like the whole skynet idea um that ai is risky and so oh, yeah. you have to program it and develop it in a way that it thinks that we are beneficial to it because if it ever does achieve true autonomy where it exists without needing anything from us, at that point, it's got to decide, are we beneficial to it or not? And if we're not beneficial to it, then are we in its way? And so the, the best we can hope for, well, the best we can hope for is that it likes us. And wants to help us. The worst case scenario is, is it decides <laughs> we're an annoyance and in the way and it snuffs us out. The common ground is, is that maybe it's just indifferent to whether we exist or not. And maybe that's okay. But well, the sad risk. part is, is that we don't even have to go to some hypothetical end state where, we, you know, some bit of code reaches uh, intelligent autonomy, even the version of AI that we have now, which is really just machine learning. I mean, it's damn stupid, uh, but it's a, you know, we have training models in which we throw copious amounts of data against, 
And then it learns very rudimentary ways of going about and doing things. It can just do them extremely well and much, much faster than we ever possibly could. And so the current state of the pinnacle that we have now, generative AI, um, you know, it is already causing major market impacts uh, in a negative way across the board. Yes, it has allowed some people to, you know, to be able to to write social media content a lot faster. Uh, the imaging has allowed me to come up with quick cover art for a podcast. Great. But it's also, you know, whether it is the end of essay writing for students, uh, whether it is going to put programmers out of a job, whether it's going to put entire swaths of humanity out of a job just from the fact that it can do what it has, that's one question. But the fact that we've created something that's not, it, it doesn't it doesn't depend upon the truth. No, uh, it, does, have, it does not depend upon the truth at all. Yeah, we have it thrown... It can establish any truth it wishes. Exactly. We have thrown the entirety of the internet at these training models. And they have come out with things that sound extremely confident you get some bulletproof answers when you're when you're when it's actually generating this crap the problem is is that we have not made a system of truth we have made the ultimate bullshitter mm -hmm. things that sound a hundred percent confident when those answers are absolutely incorrect time and time and time again there was actually um i was watching the video just the other day there was a lawyer who decided to have ChatGPT write his uh, his brief for uh -huh. him. Uh -huh. And it came up with like eight different case sightings. And the problem is, is that none of those cases exist. And now he is in major, major, <laughs> major trouble yes, because he is a custodian of the court. Right. And you have to do your own bloody research and be extra careful. And he was not. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's priceless. Oh, that is that is excellent, that is, though. Yes, it is. So he's saying, well, in, in you know, in, in Kunzler versus Wilson, 1962, uh, <laughs> it, it was decided that the plaintiff – What's that? You know, I I couldn't laugh. <laughs> it was funny. That is the the problem with humanity. Humans, gosh, <laughs> we we will just do whatever we think is in our best interest, no matter what the consequences are. Sometimes, you know. Amen to that. One. Uh, All right, guys. Let, let, let me let me just. We've talked about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a an eschatological figure both of you would agree on that yep, absolutely absolutely do we survive an eschaton as human beings in let's say it's, it's not going to be more than 50 years before ai has reached a point where it can't be controlled i if it takes that long i'll be surprised but it so i, I could I could see it taking as long as 50 years. Does humanity survive that? Just take a vote. Well, or give me a, a percentage of a probability of humans surviving that. Well, I'm an optimist. So I'm going to go 
60-40. Okay. Survival. What about thou, JJ? If we do, it's by pure dumb luck. Excellent answer. Um, so we survived the ad so far, I will say, um, the advent of creating nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And the sheer amount of stories of we almost wiped ourselves out are countless. And but, they are. But they're also not true. I mean, if you were to take every nuclear weapon on the earth right now and aim them in as destructive a fashion as you can, you still couldn't, you couldn't kill everybody. The, you know, I guess that's, but I mean, just, but the fact that we have had so few nuclear accidents as we have had mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. kind of a miracle. If well, we do that- survive, I would say that it falls into that same type of concept. But I mean, just there's this idea of uh, uh, in astronomy of the the civilization line. And, you know, the open question of why haven't we found other intelligent species out there? Fermi's Fermi paradox. Yeah. And the idea of that boundary line of, you know, if we're before the line, then it means that there is this thing out there that is a civilization destroyer Mm -hmm. and we haven't reached it yet or we're after the line and we somehow have miraculously survived it but so few other civilizations have i think that's entirely too optimistic (laughs) no and in my opinion that is we are on the line i think we are on the line right now i think the struggles that we are going through are the struggles that a civilization would go through to reach beyond a a destructive end i think that the the politics the weapons of war the technology it's all happened so fast and it is just seems exponential in how rapidly change has happened i think that we make it past the next hundred years the next maybe even 50 years i think we're golden but i think we're sitting on that line right now my answer to the fermi paradox is that in order for us to not communicate with anyone they don't necessarily have to be dead they just have to be incapable of doing anything major now so every ego-driven Species, every ego-driven sapient species is going to reach the point where we are now, where we've got pretty much instant communication anywhere. Uh, the uh, the total mass of knowledge is, is available to anybody who wants to access it. it. Doesn't matter. People don't. Most people look. I mean, this is this is the uh, uh, the negative victor. Uh, most people don't give one dog shit about knowledge. They give, they care a whole lot about being able to control the knowledge that other people have. But in terms of wanting to be able to build this system in their mind that comports very carefully with 
objective reality. Please excuse the interruption. This is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. Part of my duties here is to protect these gentlemen from stray, possibly threatening supernatural forces. What did you happen to hear that very end of that last little segment? You hear a ghostly, uh-huh. Let's hear it once again, or perhaps three or four more times. Objective reality. Objective reality. Objective reality. Objective reality. That, my friends, was a Class A EVP. It is perhaps one of the best EVPs the members of the Paranormal Rundown staff have ever heard. So, they decided to talk about the EVPs they've captured lately, because there have been several. Perhaps Vicar Manson has drawn the ire of some supernatural entity somewhere. And if he has, that means that I have a job to do. During the last, one of the last paranormal roundups, on my track of the roundup, recorded on Zencaster, there appeared an EVP, or what I believe is an EVP, that is sort of interestingly placed and extremely clear. And since that happened during this episode, perhaps you heard it, we didn't remove it, and I uh, thought we might talk about it a few minutes. Yeah, so, so I was doing the final review before posting up the file today, uh, uploading it for distribution, and... And I, I caught this, and it's it's funny because Vic had sent it to me before, uh, but I didn't realize it was from a rundown. He was like, "Oh, check out this, you know, this EVP I caught recording on on my channel," and I thought it was was incredible that we got one while we were actually recording. So the first thing I want to ask, well, actually, well, we don't know the exact time uh, where it is in the file because we haven't finished the the editing with with putting this where we're going to put it but it is when vic is talking about sort of the tail end of the discussion about the fermi paradox and we're talking about uh well he's talking about how the um the possibility of of keeping people down so they never get past that point technologically is real possible because people like power and they're more interested in power than getting beyond, uh, you know, to have a, a source of the truth. And that's not long after that is when somebody apparently agrees with you, Vic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, re I'll replay it uh, a couple of times. Objective reality. Objective reality. Objective reality. Objective reality. JJ, you, you did hear it, right? I did, yeah. You shared it with me. And not only was it extremely clear, I could not think for the life of me where it would have come from. To me, when I first heard it, it sounded almost like bleed through from another track but there was nothing on the other tracks that was going on nope. and it was clearly on yours so it was either a ghost of zen player i mean uh, what zen caster or 
<laughs> Who knows? That sounds but, like a like a like a video game. Ghosts of Zencaster. Ghost Zencaster. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so this is the thing. It was only when you listen to it, you listen to the other channels, Vic, and it's only on your channel, right? Only on my channel. Yeah. And it seems like if it was a Zencaster, it'd show up uh, everywhere. It would show up on all the channels, wouldn't it? I. I Unless it was, I guess, maybe your connection to Zencaster. That seems intuitive to me. Now, the truth is, I don't know how Zencaster works. And uh, even though this is a very clear audio artifact, and that's really all I can call it with utter certainty. But I could say it's an EVP, but I have no idea what its origin is. Well, so I have encountered kind of similar things in Zencaster, but... It would always come through another channel's bleed through into the original. Uh-huh. And that is not the case here. So, so when you say from another channel's JJ, you're talking about in the same recording? Exactly. Yeah, because normally, depending upon the number of people that you have in the Zencaster room, then you will have two or more different channels active. And if someone is extremely loud on one channel, then there's the possibility that it would be picked up and bleed through on your channel or vice versa, however it may be. But that's not the case here. So, yeah, I have no explanation for this, honestly. Well, for one thing, it sounds like a a female voice, not a male voice. Exactly. Yes, and and when we record, that was... We were a couple of hours in when that happened, so it'd be sometime around midnight. Uh, probably after, but yep. yes, it was it was late. Yeah, probably after midnight, which means Caroline was in slumberland. And as and I said, my wife def- definitely wasn't in the room or anywhere yeah, near the room. Yeah, and, and as I say, Stewie doesn't talk. Um, yes, my <laughs> wife's the same way. She's out at you know, Laura's out at, at ten. She's done. So. Yeah, and my yeah. daisy's hand has not gathered human language yet. So, <laughs> well, here's the other thing that I kind of wanted to bring up, um, and probably I do this at my own peril. I've had a number of these things happen recently. I mean, this is you have. this is I believe the fourth one that's happened in the last few months. And it sounds right. Yeah, and one of them happened when I was in. Uh, Oh, what's that city called? Fenwick Island. And I was recording uh, a long episode, lots and lots of recording chunks. But I was in a closet because it was the only place I could find that was quiet and didn't have horrible acoustics. And, um, man, there's a long one that comes through in that. Cedric Dankworth Smythe says we should hear that. This is about 25 seconds long, and there are very menacing sounding EVPs. Throughout the clip. The man realized that his mind was clear. That the thing that was dead on his porch outside, or not dead on his porch outside, had stopped moving. He realized that for the first time in two weeks, he did not feel as if his life was imminently going to come to an end and be the life of prediction. It's as if there is some vast oppressive being breathing deeply and making his fetid presence known. The man realized that his mind was clear, that the 
thing that was dead on his porch outside, or not dead on his porch outside, had stopped moving. He realized that for the first time in two weeks, he did not feel as if his life was imminently going to come to an end and be the life of prediction. Now, you know, that's interesting about that, Vic, is that was one that was your episode on the Antichrist. Yes, it was. And while we were talking about the Fermi paradox, this was in the segment of our show about the Antichrist. Well, okay, maybe I've pissed somebody off. <laughs> Could be. <laughs> it's very possible you that just I need to get out of the closet, Vic. That's all it is. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, to, I couldn't to, yeah, yeah, I know. The get out of the closet is pretty pretty impossible to forget. When when I listened to it the first time, I think what I told you was the it sounded like slowed down speech. Yeah, it does kind of sound like slow down speech. Yeah. Right. It doesn't sound I mean, you can tell it's not the normal background stuff that you've got in there, but it sounds like really slowed down, like you got the the record with your finger on it, just letting it go really slow. And well, so, it sounds weird. Yeah, so there's a precursor at the beginning. There's one at around eight seconds. And then at the end, there are two additional ones. But I don't know if they're part of the sound, sound like any sound effects that you may have been doing. But I wasn't doing was, any sound effects at that point. Okay. All, I didn't all, think so. All this was was a, um, let's see, a Zoom. It was a Zoom HN5 that I had set up in a, uh, it was mounted between a whole bunch of pillows. So all this closet was, was me, a bunch of pillows stacked up, blankets in there. I had made it as acoustically dead as I could possibly make it. And it was in the corner of the house. And none of the ductwork even goes into that closet. There's no plumbing in there. There's no, there's nothing there that could make any kind of noise. Um, Especially of that deep of a base. Yeah. Was, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> once again, I have no idea where these things are coming from. Now, the the, well, the, the beach house, uh, I mean, I, I certainly have no thought that, my gosh, there have been thousands of people who have rented that house over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you never know. And if I re also remember on that episode, Vic, I think I told you that later on in your story, like five minutes, ten minutes later, there's more of that. Oh, good. Um, I, I think there's more <laughs> of it in in that recording that you did in the closet. So, so there's a plug for you. The third <laughs> Antichrist episode of Trailer Trash Tears. Go through and see if you can find the EVPs right. and send us an email. It's the yeah. <laughs> Whoever finds the most EVPs gets a free um, autograph Antichrist picture or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Hello again. In case you've forgotten, this is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. We will now hear the third EVP that has been recently collected through Vicar Manson's podcasting activity. I don't like to rule out any possibility in complex situations. Yes. 
My answer is also yes because of my personal experiences. Unrepeated once again for your listening pleasure. I don't like to rule out any possibility in complex situations. Yes. My answer is also yes because of my personal experiences. I love this one. Uh, did you actually hear that? And that's why you said. No, I, no, I, I, there's no audible. My answer is also yes. Yeah, there's, there's no, there was no audible aspect to it. Yeah, okay, if you listen but, to the 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 full like the context, he's saying that he was uh, yes to some idea or or question or something, and then he's repeating. You know, my answer is also yes because, uh, but this thing's like parroting like yes, and it's right before you say yes the second time, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe it's like. Yes, I'm waiting for what you're going to say next. It's yeah. waiting enthusiastically. Yeah, go faster, dum dum. Um. <laughs> That's fascinating. All I know is that when you originally sent me the one from the rundown, it prompted a quick conversation about some protection methods. <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah. Well, I've, I'm working on those. I've got my um, my St. Michael's prayer printed out and mounted appropriately, and I've brought. Uh, I have a crucifix in here now, um, and I probably should do some other things. But when when I go back to Japan, I will definitely be picking you up in Omori for protection against evil. I have one in my backpack; it's always on my person, whether in the room or if I go outside somewhere. So, what what is that, JJ? It's a small charm that you can pick up at any temple whether buddhist or shinto in nature and it looks like a small tiny little um embossed envelope and it has various items inside it and they make them for a variety of occasions whether it's success in academics and romance some temples have reputations for being extremely successful in one thing over another um but the one that I got is from where my um, father-in-law lives. It's the local temple, and they're supposed to have pretty good protection against evil charms. So that's what I got. Okay. Well, I will certainly appreciate that. But when Dave and I went, we went to um, Sensology, and I know I got my daughter one of those protection against evil charms because it's renowned for being highly effective. Did you get one while we when we were there? No, no, I didn't. I didn't pick up any charms. I I can't remember if Laura did or not. Um, but but they had all kinds of things there. That was that was a beautiful temple too. That was a oh, really really neat place. Crowded at all times of year, but yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah. One now of the I think. Buddhist. I think what we're missing out of here in, in this discussion, Vic, when when you think about why this might be happening, I think you're missing one possible source. And that is that this entire discussion, outside of being within the Antichrist segment, was the discussion about AI. Yes, we were discussing AI, huh? We were. We had a long discussion about AI right before we got into the Fermi paradox. Mm -hmm. And 
I think that the AI might be watching you. <laughs> See, I think now I think I'm good because it wasn't on my side. JJ's probably good, but I think you've done something, and the AI is keeping its eye on you. Well, I think I've uncovered some of its secrets. Um, I, that may be. You know, that's well. I, if it was going to come after anybody, it would be me because I have done nothing but badmouth AI from day one. <laughs> <laughs> Either scared of me or something. I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, maybe you ought to be watching your channels too. I, I I don't know. Well, anyway, we weren't going to take this a long way, but both of you know me, and I'm assuming that both of you uh, trust that I, I wouldn't fake these things. Oh dear, let For, me, you would be the absolute last person I would ever peg to do something. <laughs> <like that. laughs> and, yeah, and, I agree. And I. Um, I mean, I, I I will tell you, I don't feel any particular fear uh, about this. Maybe I should, but you know, I, I think my the way that I live, I think my soul is pretty safe. Now, that's probably an arrogant thing to say. But... No, I think that especially when one gets settled in life, you're comfortable with your viewpoints, how you live. I I don't see any reason why it's you know if you entrust yourself to whatever higher power you may believe in i i don't see how that would be an arrogant statement it would just be simply a matter of faith at that point yeah but i will also say one last thing we don't need to manufacture intrigue or mysteries we're not you know, exploring, you know, uh, haunted, supposed haunted locations and jumping in our own shadows. And, you know, we, we don't have a show to sell. We're, this is we're, we have fun just talking about this stuff. We, we don't need this stuff to be an actuality. So. Absolutely. You know, and it's 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 fun to see this stuff pop up in a certain way. I mean, it gives us something really unique to talk about and it's right in our ballywick as far as the type of content, but yeah, I, I can't see this as anything that we would want to, to make up. Exactly. Once again, this is Cedric Dankworth Smythe. If you happen to hear any EVPs that we may have missed, please let us know at feedback at ParanormalRundown.com. I will now return you to the regularly scheduled Paranormal Rundown already in progress. They would rather have power than that, and that isn't where power comes from. So you don't have to kill everybody. You just have to create a system that where nobody can cooperate because everybody's everybody is dealing in their own little ego land. <clears throat> so that'd be enough to make for a Fermi paradox, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have to die. True. But I think a whole, but I think a whole bunch of them do die. (laughs) But, but there is this other point where you, you don't really have to kill everybody. You just have to make it where they can't do anything. And we're, we're right at that edge. But do we, but you, hmm. okay. So when you say make it to where you just can't do anything, you're, you're basically talking about a, Almost a feudal type society. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nobody. Nobody. The people in control have the technology and the knowledge, and everybody else just has some subservient life. 
Yes. Do you remember Gore Vidal, who I hated? <laughs> but I had I, I had to admit his incredible brilliance. Oh, I'm trying to remember the reference, but keep going. Gore Vidal was an author, uh, communist, uh, homosexual, agitator kind of guy, media darling. And he said, look, you, you know, here are your, here are your future possibilities. Um, you can have something that I'm going to call right now a Pax Americana. It, it may not be an Americana in the future, but it's a, it's a piece driven by a powerful, but essentially benevolent power. And he was talking about the U.S., say, in the 1990s. Or you can have a worldwide caliphate. Um, or you can have a, uh, a, a Leninist, Maoist, Marxist kind of state that covers everything. Or you can collapse back to the Stone Age. You know, he said the idea of having a worldwide and and whether you like Jefferson or not, a Jeffersonian kind of democracy where people cooperate. He said that ship has sailed. We are not as a species capable of doing that anymore. Now, I don't know that he's fully correct about that, but man, I sure have thought about that that interview for a long time. I disagree. I think Good. that that's I want to disagree possible. too. <laughs> I think that it's not easy. And it may not be likely, but I think it's possible. And so my point with the like that idea that you have a small group controlling everything and everybody else is subservient to them eventually <coughs> again in an ego-driven society, right? Mhm. The same thing that got us to where we are today, eventually the people will rise up against whatever is in control. So very you, possibly you yeah. may mm -hmm. go through stages of advance, decline, advance more, decline a little bit, decline, advance more. You know, you're you're stepping up towards something that can break past that line. So so maybe it's an iterative. Right. So instead right. of it being a, a linear kind of advancement, it's a it's a stepping stone kind right. of thing. That's very possible. Mm -hmm. But I think you either you either break through that line eventually or you destroy yourselves. Because I think as long as the knowledge exists, right? The and the books are written Right. Even if you lose electricity, the books are written that have all of our knowledge in it. Um, unless you have a Fahrenheit 451 scenario, mm -hmm. you people which, are which going, can't happen anymore. Not easily, right? Um, as maybe as part of that destruction we're talking about, but uh, as long as the knowledge exists, the people are going to eventually recoup. And rise up and push past that controlling power. So the only way that that doesn't happen is, is that you just wipe everybody out. Well, I guess you could have a Butlerian Jihad. Do you, <clears throat> you know the concept of the Butlerian Jihad? No. What about you, JJ? Nope. Frank Herbert Dune where 
the world had become so controlled by computers and sentient machines that people rise up and make computers eliminate computers. We have no more computers. And so what had to happen when there were no more computers is that people had to develop their, their own skills. Wow. I'm a, I'm a pretty big Frank Herbert fan. That was in which book? The first Dune. One? Dune. Yeah. Well, Dune, he talks about the Butlerian Jihad. He, he talks about it as a, as something that just had already had, has already happened. So he talks about it as a part of history. Excuse me, as a part of history. Okay, I, I, you know, I, it sort of rings a bell. I, I but, but I get the idea, right? So, you you got to move past computers and, uh, and technology. Well, I mean, so yeah, I mean, technology mm-hmm. has to become stupid. Well, technology becomes stupid. The idea, I mean, there were. Commandments in the Dune universe. Okay, thou shalt not create a machine in the image of the human mind, which was the main commandment. And of course, uh, there were civilizations that broke that rule. But anyway, it's. I, I think we survive. I don't know that we survive as something that is going to be worth living. But I think we. I think we survive. I, I think we get I I, I stand by sixty forty maybe sixty five thirty five uh, that we actually we get past this um, you know maybe by the grace of God uh, he nudges us past it um, and and we wind up a, a better society that that can manage this stuff. But I I'm don't going think to put, we're there yet. I, I don't no. think we're past the line if it exists. I'm going to put forth a suggestion. The third topic, if we were to go by the script to talk about tonight, is the Odyssey. <laughs> yeah. And I ain't got enough left in me to talk no, about no, no, the no. Odyssey. I am totally um, with you there. I, I, I ain't got enough. There's not enough Victor left to talk about the Odyssey. Yeah, so, no, actually, I need to get going here pretty soon. Okay. Well, can we take – can we have a, a palate cleanser topic, say – Something fairly easy. Pick one out, Vic. Absolutely. All right. Here we go. Let me. All right. Holding F9 down. Okay. Uh, (laughs) Here's what we came up with. Um, All right. Bloody Mary. Buried Alive. Brotherhood of the White Temple. Malleus Maleficorum, King of Terrors, the Invisible They Them. Oh my God! That's like, <laughs> that's like so many of my topics that I love to death. Oh, how can you even choose? What's this White Temple thing? I I, I haven't heard this. Brotherhood of the White Temple has to do, I believe, JJ, and you tell me if I'm wrong, with kind of the Rosicrucian, esoteric, Gnostic world? I have no idea. Okay. Then we're going to hit F9 again. <laughs> no, no, no. We've got so many good topics that you've already listed out. 
Okay. The well, invisible they. The invisible they. I mean, here, here. All right, let's just do the invisible they. We can do that in a few minutes. So, sometime when people start to becoming aware of the world, especially smart people, okay, sometime around sixth, seventh grade, they start trying to figure out what's happening in the world, and the human mind puts together really, really good fantasies. Okay, so I can remember being in sixth grade and talking to my buddies and saying things like, well, you know, they've developed a ray gun that can get rid of UFOs, ah, you know, and, and I was real serious, you know, when, you know, when I was talking about it, I had no idea who they were. I didn't even know where I got the idea that they had developed an invisible ray gun. <laughs> but but i think it's a meaningful part of the way that human minds develop in terms of believing that there's some force out there that can do amazing things that you can't really name well the i that the the term invisible they uh really actually comes from heidegger Okay, well, let's hear the high. Well, well, golly, that'll be a breeze. <laughs> Such a light topic at the end. That'll be a awesome. snap. Yeah, Heidegger. Just, yeah, sure. Give us the one minute overview. <laughs> well, the, the idea is that everyone has, even if they're trying to rebel against the ideas that they were brought up with, um, everyone has really one direction in which they can react. It's either really for or against the norms of a society in which they have been brought up in. Okay. And thus educated them. And this is what the invisible they or them comes from. It's this idea that it is the the, the invisible police that are really kind of embedded within language and environment and culture that dictate how a given society understands and reacts to any given topic in which it has familiarity with. Now, to take it another step, which is the other aspect of it, which is exactly what Victor was going off from. Um, have you all ever seen... Um, John Carpenter's, oh dear Lord, Citizen, no, um, it's the body horror John Carpenter film. Uh, Existence? Is that John Carpenter? No, it's, um, Sam Neill, Uh, it, in the mouth of madness. Okay, I've not seen it. I've not seen it. I, I mean, I always thought that was a um, a takeoff on Lovecraft. It is. It, it's very much of a body horror kind of Lovecraftian thing. Uh, we have to watch it for coming <coughs> up Wednesday movie night because it is just absolutely fantastic. But the opening scene has Sam Neill sitting in a in 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 a, in a um uh in a padded room in a mental hospital mm-hmm. where he has drawn 
hundreds of thousands of crosses in various different manners. He has them tattooed all the way across his face, his arms, uh, his clothing. And he goes over this idea of they or them. Ah. This, this exact same concept of, you know, whatever you fear, that is them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're out there. And it's just, it, it's a magnificent scene. The entire movie is magnificent. But yeah, I mean, this idea, it's its really the same kind of thing, just not quite so um, philosophically based. Well, you know, they reverse engineered UFOs a long time ago. Right. Mm-hmm. And these are the crap and they that we have see a cure for cancer that they're hiding from you and me and JJ. Well, and everybody else they, who they have to do that because if you cure right. cancer, you can't su- make so much money on the medications and the treatments. <laughs> they know what they're doing. Indeed, they do. <laughs> well, I mean, this gets to one of the interesting. Look, I, I have had a, a bear of a time finding guests lately, and part of it is because I have been trying to get guests who are a little different from what I normally talk to people who are kind of out there on the fringe. Um, You know, so I've been trying to find some flat earthers and some, you know, some various conspiracy theory types. And I, you know, I've promised them, look, I, you know, I'll treat you well. You know, my job isn't here. I'm not here to argue with you. If I think you're wrong, I'll tell you, but man, these guys just will not talk to you. The, they, and this is a given they, are just frightened to death of sitting down and actually laying out what they think. And so the thought in my mind comes to, why is that? If this is something they feel so strongly about, why are they so afraid to sit down and just talk about the ideas? Um, <clears throat> and I, I guess I've decided is that they think that, you know, I have power that I don't have, or I have some way of uh, impacting their lives. Anyway, it, I didn't put it down, JJ, as one of the titles of as thinking about Heidegger. Because, man, I got to tell you, I'm a, I'm a Heidegger. I lost. <laughs> well, as, as anybody honestly is, unless you are Heidegger himself. Um, I, I was in the... Tennessee Governor School for the Humanities uh-huh. and had a professor say, if you ever wanted to feel like a complete idiot, go read the most complex book ever written, mm-hmm. which is Being in Time. Right. Zeit and Zeit. Right and Zeit. And I'm like, okay, I've, I've got to. Go I mean, this is a this challenge. Thing. You got to go solve this challenge right now. Hell yeah. And I went to the library and I began reading it. And three pages in, I'm like, I have no idea what the hell I just read. I, that's where None I was. At all. Yeah. And I went and I, in college, I mean, but this was an obsession at this point. Like I had to understand this bloody book. And I had a, uh, a professor sit and actually teach a specialized course on Heideggerian terminology. Just the language, not yeah, the, not the concept. He, <laughs> because to him, Heidegger was like, okay, I want to examine being and not just being, but the introspective part of being that examines itself <coughs> be called Dasein. And in doing so, he made up an entire vocabulary. Of vocabulary. Yes, he did. And 
it's fascinating. Like if you actually, if you can get past the vocabulary, like every page is chocked full of these nuggets of ideas, which he kind of picks up, he plays with a little bit, and then he tosses it back in the sand to go for another batch. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating book, which is just even more heartbreaking to find out that he was a Nazi. But I mean, it really is. Yeah, I mean, it is a it's a magnum opus that I wish everybody could read because it is fascinating, like absolutely fascinating. If you can divorce the book from the man, it is a fascinating read. Yes, well, I'm capable of doing that. I can I can think of the body of work of an individual in one part of my brain and the fact that they were, you know, something close to an antichrist in another part of my brain. Or even if you don't want to go to that extent, if you go and read uh, Beyond Good and Evil, Mm -hmm. which is a philosophical biography (coughs) of Heidegger, that, I mean, it's not quite the same itch that it scratches, but Mm -hmm. if you ever wanted, like, something to just massage your brain and to kick it into high gear, Uh uh, that is it. Like I remember reading, buying that book with my own money and reading it while I was in grad school and thinking that I, because when I went, when I was finishing college, I had to choose, was it philosophy or was it religion? And I had a real hard time coming up with that answer. So I didn't know. And I finally went with religion because I love languages more than I loved the idea of just sitting around and thinking deep thoughts. And so I went off and did that. But reading that book in my first year of grad school, I was convinced that I had chosen the wrong path. That's how good of a book it was. Mm, Okay. Well, I haven't read that. Anyway, I will shut up now. No. Well, that and it's, I've, I've got to urge. We, we've got to go. Any, anyway, I, I think that there is both on the, how do you say it? Heideggerian? Yep. Heideggerian sense. It's not one of the words, it's not a word I use every day. Um, and in just the general sense of the way that people come to understand the world and the way that probably a lot of conspiracy theories develop and in the way that certain people just kind of get stuck without ever going past that point of just assuming that the they is out there. Uh, it seemed like an, it seemed like a topic worth talking about to me. Oh, absolutely. Definitely. Actually, if uh, y'all don't mind, if I could give kind of a, a quick, like closing Please palate do. cleanser to a palate cleanser. Palate cleanser to a palate cleanser. So when I was in grad school, my accent was a lot thicker than it is now. Just I, wish I, could have heard, I wish I could have heard time. that. time has kind of eroded it down to somewhat normalcy by this point in time i i I think um but like when i was in high school and i went to a debate camp i i had people call me boss hog because they I literally had a a girl come up to me and go you know what when i first met you i could not understand a thing you were saying 
And I'm like, why? She's like, your accent. I'm like, I have an accent? What? I have no idea. <laughs> where? Where, where? There they come from, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but anyway, when I was in um, in grad school, I would often talk about Heidegger with one of my really good female friends at the time. And she said that because of my accent, it sounded like I was saying, hi, Digger. And so every time she would greet me, it was, hi, Digger. Hi, Digger. <laughs> I still think about that to this day. Well, that's, that's that's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, gentlemen, listen, it's been a, a one day we're going to go through theodicy. Uh, at yeah. some 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 point in the future, we're going to go through theodicy. Probably it'd be a good idea to have a an ethicist or a, a minister or something. You know. Or a really good, strong drink. <laughs> really, really, really good strong drink. Yeah, Maybe really both. good strong drink. Yeah, I uh yeah, I don't I don't do the heavy strong drink, but I might make an exception for that. But all right. So I guess we will call this the conclusion of the fourth paranormal rundown, the paranormal rundown roundup. And um there's still one dogie left to to round up, but I think we did a I think we did a pretty good job of rounding up the other two. Well, I figure it like this. I, I, I think that we're probably, as every couple of shows goes by, every three or four maybe, we're, we'll have a backlog of things like this. So I think the roundup is probably a a quarterly thing, you know? That's a good idea. Where uh, it's like, hey, like here's it. all the stuff that we, we wanted to talk about more, but it wasn't the right time, so we'll just set it aside and... And these are the shows we'll we'll cover them on. And there we go. And that's the fourth paranormal rundown roundup. As you can see, Dave, JJ, and Vic can be absolute masters of the abrupt ending. Oh well. At least they worked and played well with others today. The Paranormal Rundown is written jointly by Dave, JJ, and Vicar Manson. It is produced by Vicar Manson. Any media clips used during this episode were used under the protection of the Fairies Doctrine. The music you heard was provided by Lobo Loco. Please... Give the boys a piece of your mind. Tell them what you think about the rundown. Give us topics you would like to hear discussed. Or give us topics you want us to avoid at all possible costs. Please write to us at the following email address. Feedback at paranormalrundown.com Until next time, this is Cedric Dankworth-Smythe, signing off.